This program deals with devil worship and satanic beliefs. It contains explicit scenes and descriptions of violent crimes and rituals. Americans are asking, who attacked our country? You have declared a subliminal jihad against the United States. Can you tell us why? Everything pertaining to what's happening has never come to the surface. fell on a different world. And Iblis is thinking, you know, I should be getting this position, not Adam, and this guy is created from dirt. And how does the army feel about you being head of the Temple of Set? And the conspiracy theorists can say what they will, but... I want you to give me power over Adam, and I want you to give me soldiers and minions and all of these things. The people had so much gain and had such a material motive to put me in a position I'm in. Well, never the true facts come and I want you to be able to give me the ability to whisper into the hearts of mankind. And uh, who was the grotto leader? Don't remember his name. You don't remember the name of a person who involved you in murder? Now these people are in very high position, yeah. Yes. Uh, welcome back to Subliminal Jihad, um, episode five. Uh, I am your co-host, Dimitri. I'm Khalid. Yeah, today we are going to stick, I guess, with the theme of Infernal Californians a little bit, but pivot to a different area instead of uh, focusing, you know, in military or politics. We're going to take a dive into the arts. Yeah, I think that's a really cool or like a really important thing to do. Uh, and something that I wanted to do uh, from the beginning when we started conceiving this podcast, because art has always been a part of this occult constellation, and all the really prominent occultists of the, you know, the 20th century, like Crowley, who we're going to talk about so much in this episode, sorry, Crowley, unholy Crowley, um, Helena Blavatsky, all those people were so deeply into arts, theater, performance, you know, ritual magic is... In a way, a mode of performance art. We talked about the connection between magic and psyop uh, on mm-hmm. our Aquino episode. Um, and I think art is a indispensable component in understanding all of this. Like when it comes to sort of symbology and the way that uh, these sort of thought patterns that we're tracing in this podcast operate. And uh, yeah, it's also a huge part of the constellation of spooky shit in California. Um, is Hollywood? Yes, that is. Yes, very Hollywood, hit. which yeah. we've we've sort of taken a few passing shots at so far. But today we're gonna get a little bit more acquainted with um, the sort of Los Angeles branch of uh, or tentacle of this uh, Catholic octopus. And so we are gonna do a kind of a glancing overview of the career, uh, both spiritual and cinematic, of Kenneth Anger. Yeah, born Kenneth Engelmeyer, another person like Anton LaVey, uh, who changed their name to sound cool. Yes, <laughs> yeah, uh, and uh, and actually, as we will see, was a very good and close friend of Anton LaVey and did for a time live up in San Francisco and was involved with uh, with a lot of things that we've already discussed. Yeah. How, how could we easily describe uh, sort of the exoteric biography or blurb about Kenneth Anger to somebody who's not familiar with them at all. Well, I feel like the exoteric biography is interesting because he is 
really revered as someone who's an incredibly influential filmmaker who was making uh, very groundbreaking experimental avant-garde films very early, like his first movie or his first sort of breakthrough movie, Fireworks, that we're going to talk about. Uh, came out, you know, in 1947, 1948, and it was, you know, some, like, for the time when, like, I Love Lucy was, like, a thing on TV, you know, like, uh, and stuff like that, like, uh, compared Mm -hmm. to what was sort of mainstream at the time, this was, like, a really uh, experimental film. So he's a huge figure in that world. I remember, you know, at NYU, there were many people who uh, would be speaking very positively of Kenneth Anger. You know, he's a very... Uh, revered figure and it's known that he was an occultist and it's known that he incorporated themes from his very active interest in Crowley into his artistic work and in his films but because people don't again kind of the problem that we deal with on this podcast all the time people don't treat that stuff seriously uh Mm -hmm. that's just seen as like oh you know like how interesting what an interesting theme but for kenneth anger and for uh, people who practice magic and practice the occult these rituals do work they do have an effect uh and that's the object of these films so where it's like Mm -hmm. a cute thing like oh he used these ritual principles to make his art uh you know these films are magical rituals uh and they're not usually viewed in that respect by people who uh, don't really take that aspect of things very seriously, except as, you know, an interesting influencer, you know, a, a curiosity. Yeah. yeah, kind of more more on the level of trivia than something formative and substantial. And, yeah. uh, and the, to talk just a second, you're right that his early work, starting with uh, the short film Fireworks in 1947 uh, and then going into the 1950s and early 60s, was legitimately influential. And I would say just from a, a film history standpoint, was innovative and groundbreaking in some respects, uh, yeah. just on an audiovisual kind of, you know, technical craft level. Mm-hmm. Um, he experimented with a lot of things that would become very uh, common innovative tropes in new Hollywood cinema in the 1970s. Uh, what comes to mind is like the the pairing of pop music and yeah. a, a sort of sinister montage the way that uh, he first did in Scorpio Rising, uh, which mm-hmm. I believe is in 1963, uh, basically pairing doo-wop music with these kind of uh, sort of hunky, gay, Nazi-dressed uh, kind of hot rod guys and bikers mm-hmm. and things like that. Like, a lot of really interesting juxtapositions and a lot of ironic use of popular music that uh, really influenced people like Martin Scorsese. You can see it in Quentin Tarantino's films, the way he uses surf rock and Motown. Um and, yeah. uh, and and did, you know, have a pretty wide impact. And I think I, I saw in one article that it was David LaChapelle, the famous music video director and fashion photographer, who says that Kenneth Anger basically invented the con the conceptual framework of music videos. Yeah, in, um, in the eighties and nineties. And I think yeah, that yeah. is absolutely true. And in some ways their most enduring value uh or 
maybe it's just you know from our modern perch uh what we would see uh, the, what we how we would interpret the content of something like scorpio rising which is just like a three or four minute actually no it might be a little longer that might be 10 or 15 minutes yeah, scorpio uh, rising's a bit longer. yeah but and it's kind of just a montage with maybe four or five uh mostly doo-wop uh or motown songs over mm-hmm. it and it does feel kind of like a music video um that's yeah. the first thing that pops to your head but all of his he films was, are silent you know all of his films have that yeah and there's sort of yeah. a historical sensibility. He was a big, he really revered silent films and was very interested in them and the sort of iconography of the silent era. I mean, this dude now at this point is like 93. He's mm-hmm. old. He's very, very old. Uh, and for a lot of his career, interestingly, he's always looked very young for his age. Um, you know, maybe yeah. some of those rituals having a, having a, an effect. But, um, uh-huh. you know, uh, but yeah, he's a, uh, he's like been very very uh influential in that respect like i'm thinking of david lynch as someone oh my who, god like, yeah yeah totally like blue velvet is yeah yeah blue velvet i think especially and mulholland drive are two films that are like deeply i think influenced by um kenneth anger's experimental work basically what he called his magic lantern cycle which was a series of short films from the 1950s uh, up through i think the early 1980s uh, yeah, or the late 70s. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, but, like, yeah, uh, I mean, and he's not just someone who's influential uh, tangentially, like, just in the same way that he was plugged into, or, you know, not influential just by people being exposed to him in some way. In the same way he was plugged into these occult circles, he was friends and, like, congregated with people like Joe Dorowski, you know, Scorsese, Dennis Hopper, like, all these people, you know, he had. Yeah, later on, uh, Keith Richards him. and Mick Jagger. Yeah, oh, for sure, yeah, Jimmy Page. And also Jimmy Page, who was an extremely dedicated Thelemite and dark occultist who actually bought Aleister Crowley's Loch Ness Manor, I believe, in the 1970s. Yeah, Bull House, yeah, very spooky haunted house uh, Mm. on the shore of Loch Ness. Yeah, Um, and and, and contributed music, and I believe actually appears in uh, his, kind of maybe his best-known work of the Magic Lantern Cycle, which is Lucifer Rising from 1972. He eventually, it's actually funny, kind of gets gets into some of the spooky stuff about Kenneth Anger that we're going to get into later on. But yeah, Jimmy Page was supposed to write the music, but I, I guess it didn't come together for some reason. And so then he got uh, Beausoleil. Uh, Bobby Beausoleil. Do, yeah, Bobby Beausoleil to do the music, uh, who was a member of the Manson family. Uh, and he actually wrote the music from prison, uh, where yes. he was for murdering a guy and trying to frame the Black Panthers. Uh, yeah, so, yeah, that yeah. was uh, that was Gary Hinman, the UCLA PhD music student who I guess got on the wrong side of Manson and his people over like a bad mescaline deal. Yeah, and, they attacked uh, him with a katana. <laughs> like they, yeah. yeah, yeah, I think um, very Reservoir Dog style, ironically. Uh, uh, Bobby Beausoleil, uh, I believe, cut off... Um, yeah, Gary Hinman's ear with a katana and then killed him at Manson's order. It's actually the only of all the Manson murderers, it's the one that Manson was actually present for and was literally giving orders to like kill that guy instead of just yeah. saying something and then everyone drove three hours and killed people. So yes. uh, that's interesting. And and, and Kenneth yeah. Anger was friends with him both before and after all of this Manson stuff happened. Yeah, and he starred in, or he appeared prominently in a lot of his films. Well, I guess he was supposed to appear in one of them, but footage was reused uh, in another one. So yeah, he was friends with him before and after. He let him score from jail 
uh, his Lucifer Rising. So yeah, they, which actually I have to admit, uh, Bobby Beausoleil. You know, say what you, anything else you could say about him. Kind of a talented musician, I think. Uh, yeah, genuinely, and I think of all the music, good. I think Lucifer Rising. I believe one of the tracks from it was used uh, in Gaspar Noé's Love, um, mm-hmm. who's a director that I both admire and I'm kind of afraid of. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's like kind of sus, but um, but yeah, that that's how I was exposed to the Lucifer Rising soundtrack. And and it's pretty good. I mean, it's certainly much better than the experimental Moog soundtrack that Mick Jagger made for his previous film, yeah. which we'll we'll get to. But before we get ahead of ourselves, I mean, Kenneth Anger. So he he not only was sort of just artistically influential. You're right for her, for you know people being exposed to his work, but he was friends with a lot of very famous and influential people, and introduced a lot of people a lot of celebrities to kind of occult practices in uh, particularly in the late 60s and early yeah. 70s he he uh and also i think another thing um just to mention to like keep in mind is that uh and i think this is part of the reason why at places like NYU and in the art world that he kind of gets a pass for all of his spooky occultism is because he's kind of considered one of the founders of like queer cinema in america Oh, yeah, for sure. And that's, uh, yeah, it's like a a big component, like the whole element of camp uh, is also really like a huge innovator in the world of of camp. You know, Mm -hmm. like you talk about this sort of irony, the appropriation of the sort of trashy pop music and these kind of experimental contexts with a sort of air of menace, that type of stuff. Yeah, like the whole, uh, you know, aesthetic of camp. He's extremely influential. And yes, Mm -hmm. and yeah. uh, and and yeah. I would say you know justifiably so yeah for the most part um and I in some ways his his not overtly Thelemite or satanic films are kind of more interesting and uh, kind of to watch than I think like Scorpio Rising personally is is like a more interesting uh, short film yeah. than. I think so. Yeah, I think Scorpio Rising is better than Lucifer Rising, which is kind of the counterpart uh, to to Scorpio Rising. Um, mm-hmm. And it's a bit more sort of overtly magical. But I don't think that Scorpio Rising isn't magical or, uh, you know, influenced by Thelema or by Crowley. Um, I think. That, oh, there's definitely yeah. there's definitely thing kind of and Kenneth Anger used this term um I don't have a quote handy right now, but he explicitly described his Magic Lantern Cycle films as subliminal and yeah. designed to affect the viewer in a kind of subconscious, sub-Rosa kind of way. Yeah, and you can see, like, there's images that sort of flash on the screen for a fleeting moment. You have to sort of uh, pause it to stop, like, you know, to, to take them in or look at it. Uh, there's that sort of very conventional use of subliminal messages that uh, it's very trust Naomi, trust Ultra. Yes, it is. It's very yeah. Trust Naomi, Even though trust Ultra. I have to say, you know, and it kind of complicates the narrative about him a little bit, is that he was born in 1927, so he predates the sort of massive mind control experimentation of the MK Ultra era, which started in the early 50s. But he was also kind of just coming into his prime during that era so we'll yeah. we'll get we'll and get also there one wonders you know we kind of entertain the idea that mk ultra continued after it was officially terminated or officially so one wonders if there's uh any mk ultra type activity that precedes that um but 
anyway. That's just yeah. Well, the proceed exactly because we yeah we've talked about it it extending after the seventies. Uh, but then you have to ask yourself like what were kind of or were there any sort of predecessors which probably would have been more privatized and perhaps uh, centered around certain kind of spiritual groups or yeah. spiritualist groups and things like that, which we've, you know, we've dabbled on in the previous episodes about, um, about like Michael Aquino's mother and uh, the prevalence. We actually didn't talk yet, but we, we will circle back to like the prevalence of Masons and Knights Templars in old San Francisco among the sort of high society there. And of course, like Matt Blavatsky and obviously Crowley was around before MK Ultra, And mm-hmm. we will circle back to him when we get into uh, kind of Kenneth Anger's yeah. like, and young adult. Yeah, wrote about, in fact, vis-a-vis Jack Parsons, uh, who we'll probably mention a couple times in this episode, he wrote about how, you know, if Parsons betrayed oaths so you made to Crowley or or used rituals in certain ways that uh, it, he shouldn't, then he would develop schizophrenia or things like that. There was the idea that, you know, this magic could induce schizophrenia or these sort of uh, dissociative disorders, things like that. So uh, these ideas did circulate. You look like an angel Walk like an angel Talk like an angel But I got wise You're the devil in disguise Oh yes you are Devil in disguise Yeah, so I, I guess maybe now we'll start with kind of a chronological sort of run through of his his life and career. Like, who was he? Where did he come from? And uh, and how did he get into this world of sort of dark occultism and experimental filmmaking? Um, okay, so uh, Kenneth Anger was born on February third, nineteen twenty seven, in Santa Monica, California. Uh, like you said, he was born Kenneth Wilbur Engelmeyer. Um, he changed his name, uh, I think, when he was in college. Um, he grew up in Santa Monica and what I guess is described as a... Oh, by the way, like most... Of, before I say this, like, we're going to drop some kind of factoids about his life, and apparently he's always... He's incredibly cagey about talking about his own biography, and yeah. is we're going to see this again and again. Like, he is not forthcoming, and I guess there was an unauthorized biography written about him in 1995, and he actually put a curse on the author because he was so angry that... This this guy managed to dig up. Uh, apparently, people didn't know Kenneth Anger's real name until this biography came out in the '90s. So a lot, like I looked through the citations of like that are on Wikipedia about him, and a lot of them are from this one unauthorized book. So just keep that in mind that like some of these things were not things that he necessarily advertised about himself, but I think are a little bit interesting. So was there any result of the curse? Did uh, the guy suffer? I haven't checked if that guy's life was ruined or if he died mysteriously. Um, you know, I, uh, yeah, I did. Like in listening to interviews with Kenneth Anger, he would often joke about these types of curses or things like that, and he would say, uh, you know, 
like, uh, oh, this person was cursed, and then, you know, I'm not saying that uh, he, like, died because of it, but, <laughs> you know, he uh, has a sort of sense of wacky uh, Corellian humor, so. Yeah, he says, I mean, there's a lot of mystery, for example, over, like, Jane Mansfield dying in a car crash after she had joined the Church of Satan in the mm-hmm. 60s, and how some people thought that a curse was placed on her, and that's why she was, you know, decapitated by a a big rig or something like that in a really gruesome fashion. Um, so we don't know. We don't know Kenneth Anger's power to curse uh, to what extent it works, but he was very angry that anybody kind of dug up anything about him. And uh, and so he grew up in what was said to be a kind of middle-class Santa Monica um kind of home in uh in the 1930s and 40s uh his father very interestingly enough just happened to be an electrical engineer for douglas aircraft uh which uh later became mcdonnell douglas and then was absorbed by boeing and basically was a major like military industrial complex contractor they built a lot of planes uh that were used in world war ii and then after like the dc-7 the dc-8 the dc nine um which is funny because i think that's what l ron hubbard like based his xeno spaceships on um mm. was like dc <laughs> intergalactic dc oh right anyway. yes they were yeah, but i yes. but i digress that was a douglas aircraft so kenneth anger's mm. dad worked for douglas aircraft which i think is still um still might be or the successor is i don't know i think the airfield uh the the local santa monica airport um I think it might have been the grounds of Douglas Aircraft, like back in the in the 30s when his dad worked there. Um, his grand, his maternal grandmother, Bertha Kohler, um, was an interior decorator and a somewhat notable watercolor painter. Um, and Kenneth uh, Kenneth Anger has said that she was a really major influence on him and his appreciation of art and you know different creative things like that. Um, <clears throat> Yeah, uh, he, apparently he was he was very influenced by L. Frank Baum's Oz books as a child and uh, found their Rosicrucian philosophies very fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, that that's always a big conspiracy bugaboo is the kind of weird symbolism of uh, of uh, the Wizard of Oz and, you know, going all the way to like Pink Floyd and like the dark side of the rainbow. And, you know, uh, it did like one of the munchkins hang himself in the background. <laughs> during yeah. one of the, you know, there's all kinds of like well, weird uh, like stories going back to like the Snopes era of um, of like sinister things. But they, it did have a, uh, a Rosicrucian influence on it. And uh, yeah, and so he and was he influenced also- by. He was super into that stuff, like the Hollywood, like macabre stuff from really young. Uh, In an article about him in Esquire, uh, it notes that there's an actress, Thelma Todd, who lived just a couple of blocks from his family home. And in 1935, she was found dead in her garage of apparent asphyxiation, but with blood in her face that no one could explain. And, uh, you know, uh, Kenneth, the young Kenneth, went over to watch them take out the body um, and he was always just very interested in this type of stuff. You would see that kind of in Hollywood Babylon later on. He'd be very fascinated yes. with this. Uh, yeah, yeah. With, side of Hollywood. Exactly, yeah. And, and Hollywood Babylon was a, a, a book of, um, a sort of apocryphal book of gossip, of Hollywood gossip that, um, that he wrote in the 50s but didn't actually get 
published in the U.S. till the 70s. Uh, but yeah, it was full of all of these salacious sort of under Hollywood underworld kind of stories about, you know, starlets being drug addicts and uh, and mysterious deaths and kind of strange occurrences. It's uh, I've never actually read it, um, but it's uh, it, it the apparent. So apparently the, his, his original inspiration for Hollywood Babylon later on was he moved to Hollywood with his family uh, during his high school years. And uh, I guess he attended Beverly Hills High School. And I guess he would hear so many gossipy tales from sort of his rich uh, classmates and people that were the children of, you know, Hollywood big shots and, you know, stars and directors and things like that, um, that he sort of compiled these, you know, this whole this whole catalog of gossip about what was really going on in Hollywood during, um, you know, during the pre-war era. Um, but then in high school is when we start to see Kenneth Anger sort of begin his transformation into the figure that we all know. Um, he, I guess went to, he really loved going to silent movie screenings, uh, in LA. And I guess at one of them, he met the filmmaker Curtis Harrington, who, uh, is also considered a very prominent and important, um, experimental filmmaker and a kind of a founding father of queer cinema, uh, who also directed a lot of television and some horror movies throughout the seventies and the eighties. And they became lifelong friends and collaborators. Uh, Curtis Harrington, I believe was a cinematographer on might've been inauguration of the pleasure dome in the fifties. Um, and it was Curtis Harrington who introduced young Kenneth Anger to Alistair Crowley, uh, the religion of Thelema and uh, occultism in general. And not long after that, uh, Kenneth Anger became really fascinated by that. He also reportedly became fascinated with Eliphas Levi, who we discussed before, um, and all that kind of Rosicrucian stuff uh, from, you know, from the Oz books. And, uh, and also started to make his first films at this time, I think most of which he said he burned in 1967. So some of the earliest prints of his childhood filmmaking uh, don't really exist uh, and and sound just more like student film experiments not really that significant but eventually he graduated high school um, and uh, and went to USC to study film which I think would have made him one of the first film majors I think he caught the bug, the sort of uh, art or, or movie bug from being in Max Reinhardt's Midsummer Night's Dream in 1935 as the changeling prince. So, you know, he got to wear all these, fa- like, you know, nice outfits, you know, lots of spangly, out, like, uh, feathery outfits and run around in the Enchanted Forest, which, you know, is a fascination that you really see in his career later on. But that, I think, is... Uh, sort of the the story about where he kind of got really excited about making movies. Yes, that is the story, though. I've also read that a lot of people doubt that that's actually true. Hmm, yeah, he might like like many things in his biography that we'll keep hitting on. Uh, a lot of people say that there's no evidence of him ever being a child actor, <laughs> um, and that he completely made that up later on. Um, he, yeah. I think, he also well, said is. that his grandmother was like a costume designer on either that film or on a Midsummer 
Night's Dream as well. Um, yeah, Midsummer Night's Dream. Yeah, Mr. Night's Dream. And I think there was, like, no evidence people could find to substantiate that either. Yeah, so. that could also be a lie. Uh, I mean, it is, you know, just such an appropriate choice that is Shakespeare's most sort of um, occultic or, uh, you know, fairy uh, play. So it would be, you know, ma- it's his most magical play probably uh-huh. so it's, a, it's and that, an that has that, that has the the spirit puck in it right yes and yeah the puck would that would be something that he would uh you know champion throughout his career i think he called his productions puck film productions uh, yeah. later on a lot of the time yeah um so that makes sense. Yeah. Um, he was also obsessed with Flash Gordon, which I think is interesting because a lot of other very big boomer filmmakers were most yeah. notably, obviously, it George Lucas. It has that campy quality, you know. Same thing with Star, Star Wars, Ultimate's very campy film. Sorry, uh, don't uh, mean to offend any uh, fanboys out there, but it is. And uh, Flash is. Gordon is extremely kitschy and, and very campy. Um so I suppose there's a distinction which comes with the self-awareness, but at the very least, uh, Flash Gordon is kitschy, so it definitely has that sort of that sort of appeal to costumes, you know, the the, the chrome, the glittering, you know, that type of thing. So also uh-huh. very popular themes in, in uh, occult symbolism, uh, costuming, uh, metals. Uh, so yeah, yeah, exactly, um, and. So yeah, he Planets, actually made the stars, astrology, you know. Uh, so anyway, yeah, just yeah, saying. and he he made a uh, he made a film called Prisoner of Mars in 1942 when he would have been 15 or 16. That I guess was inspired by Flash Gordon. So there's also yeah. that. That was before he went to USC. I read. I didn't watch. I the first film of his that I watched prior to this is is his Fireworks, which uh, we'll talk about, but. Uh, yeah, prior to that, I guess he made a lot of movies that were sort of sci-fi fantasy. I read one he wrote that was about kind of the myth of the Minotaur, and it was mm-hmm. about sort of uh, a, a boy going to space. It was the Minotaur in space, and he encountered the Minotaur and saw all the skulls. Skulls are just a huge fa- thematic fascination of him. Skulls everywhere, the human skeleton, blah, 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 endlessly. Uh, so, yeah, that, that stuck with me from the description of it that I read, that uh, yeah, this boy being pursued by the Minotaur, sort of seeing uh, a mass grave of, of other little boys who had been killed by the Minotaur previously uh, and their skeletons. Yikes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. So, well, do do we want to now talk about his first... Uh, it's not a part of the Magic Lantern cycle, but it's kind of considered maybe his first uh, kind of real... Film. I think fireworks is considered part of the Magic Lantern cycle. I think the Magic Lantern cycle is fireworks, Poos moment, Rabbit's moon, Scorpio rising, custom car commandos, inauguration of the Pleasure Dome, invocation of my demon brother, and Lucifer rising. Gotcha. Uh, yeah. So I think that fireworks is actually the first film of the Magic Lantern cycle, which is the sort of most famous, uh, you know, uh, series of films, the kind of spine of his whole oeuvre that's, uh, you know, mm-hmm. he's really known for. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, I saw on somewhere that it's considered to be the first sort of gay na- narrative film. Uh, it does kind of have a loose narrative, although it's highly experimental and very, very surreal. Um, yeah, he was also friends with uh, Jean Cocteau, um, so that's uh, the connection there in terms of the surrealism of, of his films. So this movie Fireworks is very interesting. I would definitely recommend watching it. It's one of my favorite of his that uh, he did. It 
is, I mean, stars him as this sort of uh, voyeur-type figure who's constantly smoking cigarettes, and he kind of encounters this, uh, again, uh, very eroticized male sailor, um, and is, of course, was sort of cliche of sailors as being a sex symbol, uh, but, I mean, it's also a major trope of Anger's work, the eroticized male form, we see it again and again and again, um, mm-hmm. and so first the sailor's kind of performing for him, doing these sort of feats of athleticism, doing handstands, kind of flexing his muscles, uh, but it quickly degenerates into uh, a mob of sailors. Uh, accor- this may also be a lie, but uh, kind of thing are claimed to have witnessed a mob of sailors uh, sort of beating up a, a youth at, at some point in real life, and this kind of uh, influenced the, what happens in the film where anger is sort of uh, sadomasochistically brutalized with sort of morning stars and flails by this mob of, of sexy male sailors. One of the most chilling moments of the film is that his innards are kind of ripped open uh, and you kind of see his intestines and everything and, and embedded in his intestines is uh, sort of a compass or a winding clock or something. It's I think it's a compass going with the sailing theme, uh, but anyway, it's sort of this, this fusion of man and machine that uh, is a major theme through all of his work and also in this movie uh, because, yeah, at this point it's even more and more surreal. Uh, there's uh, one of the sailors sort of reaches into his trousers um, and he pulls out his uh, dick, but it's not a real dick, it's a, f- a firework and it lights off and then it sort of explodes. And then there's this man just sort of writhing with a Christmas tree on his head. And it almost seems like uh, the, the montage or the, the composition of images is such that it seems like this firework has blown apart this guy's head into this uh, sort of ornamented Christmas tree. And he's sort of wheeling around and his, he dips his head into the, his Christmas tree head into the fireplace, which ignites. And then, you know, he burns and it's, it's uh, all very horrible. Uh, but you can see the symbolic power of these images. Uh, I think Kenneth Anger said the, that the film is all I have to say about being 17, the United States Navy, American Christmas, and the 4th of July. So the Na- <laughs> it's interesting that he phrased it that way about the Navy, because I think the Navy is something that we'll come back to again. You know, we talked about yes. his family being involved in the military, uh, a big collaborator of him, uh, Marjorie Cameron, you know, was also involved in the Navy. So, yeah, these very powerful symbols of the Christmas tree, the firework. The thing that struck me the most is this... Uh, sort of chimeric fusion of man and machine or or man and object, uh, which, you know, we'll see, especially with the sort of eroticism of vehicles and cars that he gets so into later on with the sort of bikers and Scorpio rising. Uh, It's a uh, a big thing, and it's uh, a huge, you know, something that we're dealing with a lot uh, now, and we've talked about this kind of idea in the past, the sort of uh, man-machine uh, yeah, no, well, it's interesting that his his father was an electrical engineer building airplanes for Douglas Aircraft, and then he is so obsessed with hot rod culture and like these shots of uh, as we'll talk about in Custom Car Commandos and Scorpio Rising, like working on motorcycles and working mm-hmm. on engines and things like that, and kind of the juxtaposition of eroticized, um, almost going back to what we said about Disney and like commodity fetishism, mm-hmm. um, like in viewing inanimate objects with almost like living organic uh, features and personalities like Mm -hmm. he really fetishizes the sort of sparkling chrome engines and pistons of like this big machine with like this dude with like bulging jeans like 
you know. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Even in his movie Mouse Heaven, uh, which happens later on, there's this sort of the last shot of the movie is this kind of uh, Mickey Mouse becomes a sort of chrome figure, this chrome sparkling machine, and uh, there's a there's a pop song that's used. It's I'm your puppet, and it just sort of you know talks about like I'm your puppet, you know, your living, breathing puppet. Uh, yeah, this this whole thing of the commodity fetishism and, and necromancy and the, the animacy of yeah. the <laughs> anime. talked about that yeah. before, yeah. It's a huge thing, yeah. Again, another fuzzy thing in his resume. Apparently, he screened it at like a late night screening, I think in 1949, and he got arrested for uh, public indecency. Yeah, I read that he actually ended up inventing, or he and his circle kind of ended up inventing sort of the midnight movie because yeah. uh, his films were controversial, so they kind of had to find a time slot where they would work. Yeah, he said, finally, a time slot that like works for me, that I fit right, into, or yeah. something like that. Uh-huh, right. Um, but it, here's the first of like one of many interesting sort of tangents in Kenneth Anger's young life is uh, there's a certain person that I don't know somehow you know this is before YouTube and uh, I don't know Vimeo or any other way that you could watch somebody's experimental films but somehow um, a certain individual in the Midwest catches wind of uh, of of Kenneth Anger's film fireworks and uh, according to Wikipedia says that he was the first customer to, like, order a copy through the mail. And that was none other than Dr. Alfred Kinsey, the noted sexologist uh, who is, you know, largely credited with sort of sparking or providing the quote-unquote scientific underpinning for the sexual revolution in the 1960s and 1970s based on his, you know, pioneering research into... Uh, all kinds of things, and uh, I I don't know how he heard about fireworks or necessarily what he was intrigued by, um, but he reached out to get a copy of this film from Kenneth Anger, and then actually they became very good friends, and Kenneth Anger went out to, I believe it was in Indiana, right, where Kinsey was working? Uh, I don't know myself. Yeah, uh, I'm but pretty maybe, yeah. sure. Uh, mm-hmm. And he went out to, you know, where Kinsey lived. And <clears throat> they began a very close friendship and uh, I guess you could say collaboration. Um, and Kenneth Anger has said on multiple occasions that uh, Alfred Kinsey f- filmed him masturbating as part of a, a Kenneth Anger essentially volunteered or was asked to volunteer to uh, to be one of the male subjects in his vast um, sexuality study and asked him to masturbate on film and then I guess filmed him uh, I don't know if he filmed him doing it multiple times or multiple angles but Kenneth Anger said uh, that 
you know, he discovered that his uh, his toes curled up when he orgasmed and um, <laughs> other things like that. And, and they became like friends for years up until I think uh, in the late 50s is when uh, Kinsey died. But that yeah, they went just to jumped Italy out at me together, as like right to sort of investigate Crowley's old haunt that he used to hang out in before he was kicked out by Mussolini to look at his paintings and things like that to research because of course Crowley was yeah. so into sex, sex magic. They went to Alistair Crowley's old villa and yeah, they tried to restore the artwork on some sexual paintings that were on the wall, some like ritualized sexual paintings, and they conducted rituals inside of the house also. And they were they were brought a BBC panorama crew with them, but allegedly the Video, the, the film reels that they shot were lost or damaged, so we've never gotten to see the footage of Kinsey and Anger uh, basically doing their thing. And th- this would actually happen multiple times, by the way, throughout Kenneth Anger's earlier career, where he would do something and film some kind of ritual that was shocking. I, I know at, at one time he he made a short film that uh, that featured a mock Aztec human sacrifice, and. Yeah. Apparently, so he fil- claims. Yeah, so he claims. So he, he complains mock. about how people are like, "Oh, people think I do snuff films," but then he's the source of all these statements where he says, "Like, you know, this person, while I was filming Scorpio Rising, died, or I filmed this photorealistic human sacrifice and uh, things like that." So yeah, uh, and, and allegedly the film technicians, the the Wikipedia article says because uh, because of the nudity that was featured in this Aztec human sacrifice film, they. They decided to destroy the the film prints of it and like eradicated it um mm-hmm. which i mean maybe they did that but also may was that what they were most offended by or were they offended by a photorealistic human sacrifice yeah he i also, don't know it just sounds a little suspect said, to drum up sort of press for lucifer rising i think it was later in his career he staged like the death of kenneth anger you know and like burned a lot of his old movies and stuff like that so, yeah that was in 1967 yeah. where he said yeah, yeah r.i.p 1927 to 1967 and uh, uh yeah got rid of a lot of his early material so i wanted to mention one thing about about the trip that Kenneth Anger and uh, Alfred Kinsey took in the mid-1950s to the Abbey of Thelema in Italy, um, which was Aleister Crowley's former villa. So um, apparently while they were there, they uncovered, they, they removed the paint uh, on the walls inside of the villa, which had been painted over by the post-war Italian government uh, to uncover a series of murals underneath that uh, basically uh, depicted orgies and various, uh, you know, thelemic, satanic uh, sort of acts. But apparently not just that, contained murals of ritualistic, orgiastic acts involving children. And so this, is, this isn't even kind of speculation this is from the writings of war dr wardell b pomeroy who was uh one of uh, alfred kinsey's main partners at the institute for sex research so uh he says in one of his writings quote the great beast and his followers were against any kind of religion in any form except their own they held group orgies at as part of the ritual and included in them the small children the walls inside were still painted in british oriental colors and were covered 
with the most open, as Kinsey put it, sexual action pictures. The remainder of the paintings were life-size representations of sexual activity, both homosexual and heterosexual, singly, doubly, and in groups, including children. Um, So, uh, you know, that's interesting, but keep that in mind as I read this little thing about certain controversies over uh, Kinsey's research that surfaces in the 90s. So this is from a Washington Post article by Mark Fisher, not that Mark Fisher, uh, from December 12, 1995, titled Critics, Sex Ed, a Sham, Since Kinsey Used Pedophiles Data. And it goes on to say, half a century ago, Alfred Kinsey, the father of American sex research, published a report that revolutionized sexual mores. In the last week, the director of the Kinsey Institute revealed that Kinsey's conclusions on the sexuality of young children were based not on scientific study, but on the secret history of a single pedophile who kept a diary of his experiences with 317 pre-adolescent boys. Now a conservative think tank argues that America's sexual revolution is based on a fraud and must be reversed. No Kinsey, no sex education, the Family Research Council says. If man is not a sexual animal from the beginning, why teach children about condoms? Um, so, I mean, notwithstanding the, uh, the, the motivation of the people that were bringing this to light, the Family Research Council, which I believe was run by uh, Dr. James Dodson, it stands that that is true, uh, that the entire research uh, on basically childhood or adolescent sexuality that w- was a part of the revolutionary findings that Kinsey presented to the world, which had such a huge impact on our culture, um, was rather unscientifically sourced from one single incredibly prolific pedophile who had documented the their abuse of 317 pre-adolescent boys. This kind of reminds me of that controversy that came out of Canada a while ago where some dude who was like the architect of a new sex ed curriculum turned out to be like a, fl- a huge pedo and like a flagrant. Uh, yeah, he was like bragging yeah, about that. it in like uh, child porn forms and things like that. And yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, so I guess, you know, it kind of makes sense that people who are really into the sexuality of children, you know, in that field. Uh, if you're like uh, uh, someone who's into that, then it makes sense that, you know, maybe not everyone, but it certainly makes sense that that field of research or study would attract people who, ha- like, you know, have certain preformed ideas about the sexuality of children, uh, you know. You know, going back to the specific instance, you know, the idea that you would deduce from their observations that they provided you of you know, their interactions with basically their victims um, and that you would be able to scientifically deduce from that a coherent and accurate theory of childhood sexuality is pretty shocking, I think. Yeah. This guy is a, a, a criminal, like, child abuser. And, and of, like, of course he is going to say, I think in the specific instance you could say, like, of course he's going to say that it's natural and they're not really being victimized and it's totally cool. So it almost, it, it's like a, yeah. a, a level of, like, mind-blowing credulity uh, for Dr. Well, yeah, Kinsey. Maybe it's, like, tendentious in a certain way. I mean, if you think about... Uh, people like Crowley and uh, people of certain sentiment, you know, uh, or subcultural persuasion. There's definitely like a, an affinity with 
the, I mean, people like Allen Ginsberg or whatever were in NAMBLA, things like that, you know. Oh, so. speaking of NAMBLA, this is another thing that I just uh, discovered here. And I think one of the founders of, uh, of NAMBLA was a guy named Harry Hay. And he was very vocal um he was very vocal, uh, really on kind of the fringes of the LGBT movement, um, and made a big push for, I see here in 1994, Hay refused to march in a gay pride parade in New York because they forbade NAMBLA to march with them. Good on the gay pride parade. <laughs> you know, good for them. Um, and, uh, and... And but here's the funny thing about Harry Hay is that he was a very enthusiastic member of the OTO. Hmm. So he was um, a Crowleyite, uh, which is yeah. Well, I mean, I actually don't know like uh, what Crowley said in terms of uh, like the acceptability of pedo- pedophilia or whatever, but definitely. Uh, he was someone who looked to the Greco-Roman tradition, you know, the idea of pan. Uh, so, uh, as being well, also in God, one know, of so. in one of his books, I forget which one it was. He he describes a kind of when he's giving instructions for one ritual or another. He describes uh, doing human sacrifice, like based in sex magic, and that the ideal victim is like a young boy who is like a, is like a pure soul. Like, the pure soul of a young boy is the ideal sacrifice. And then people got outraged when he said that. And just like every other Satanist we ever talked about, he'd be like, oh, that is not meant to be taken literally, uh, yeah. you know? And and Crowleyites and Satanists to this day will just kind of roll their eyes at you and say, obviously, he's, like, joking. He's trolling. And, like, okay, like, maybe. But also, why is that funny? Like, it just, I, you know, I can't with these motherfuckers. <laughs> By the way, also, like, just to, so we, to rewind, um, I don't want to jump too far ahead. In 1956, he makes kind of the first big film that is, like, really classic Kenneth Anger, and that is the inauguration of the Pleasure Dome. So I don't I don't want to skip over this because this is an important yeah, I connection. Feel like we, need, we should talk about a lot of his films because he made Rabbit's Moon and all this stuff. And I feel like this is maybe a good time to explore like, sure. the Jack Parsons related stuff. Like, well, exactly. I was going to yeah. get there in a sec. Yeah, with um yeah. with inauguration of the Pleasure Dome. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, Marjorie Cameron's in that and stuff. Yeah. So, so yeah, he that is starring Marjorie Cameron, um, who is like a very famous and interesting occult figure and old Hollywood uh, figure that uh, really like pops up kind of all over the place and was very influential. But she stars in Inauguration of the Pleasure Dome, which is the first kind of like overtly Crowleyan ritualistic um, kind of film that he does. And uh, and Marjorie Cameron is interesting because she uh, she'd been around L.A. for a while at that point, and she had yeah. served in the Navy uh, during World War Two. 
Uh, another one of the many references to the U.S. Navy. Oh, yeah. She uh, was in the quote unquote Hollywood Navy, uh, which is the Navy photo lab in Potomac. Uh, and that was it was through her Navy connections that she met Jack Parsons, uh, who Kenneth Anger claimed to know uh, since adolescence that they, you know, and he was another big uh, Crowleyite. Uh, who did the the Babylon working and uh, oh, yeah, yeah. his well, view? Yeah, we'll we'll get yeah. to the Babylon. Yeah, the Babylon working. Uh, so she she goes to she ends up in Los Angeles and gets introduced to Jack Parsons in Pasadena and his whole crowd of OTO uh, Crowleyites. And at the time, Jack Parsons was living with his friend, another Navy veteran from the war, a uh, little known guy named L. Ron Hubbard. Yeah. And and so they became famous for one of probably the most famous or infamous dark magical ritual workings of, I don't know, the whole 20th century. Like people mm-hmm. still whisper about it and wonder what it was all about. But basically, um, Jack Parsons sort of became infatuated with uh, with Marjorie Cameron. And, she, you know, she had this like bright red hair and green eyes and he called her his scarlet woman. And I guess believed that she was uh, she was like a very important figure for some ritual magic. And Jack Parsons, yeah, by the way, for anybody had, that doesn't know, uh, is like a formative rocket scientist who was, was like one of the founding fathers of American rocketry in the yeah. 1940s. And before he even met her, he had done a uh, ritual with Elron Hubbard um, to obtain the assistance of an elemental mate. And that was, uh, he believed his meeting, uh, Marjorie Cameron, was the culmination of that uh, ritual and that later became part of the the Babylon working and yeah so uh, can you can you describe what the Babylon working was for people who don't know uh the Babylon working was I mean Jack Parsons had corresponded with Crowley and all these things basically the Babylon working was an attempt to through the elemental mate uh, Marjorie Cameron who identified as a scarlet woman uh or in some way even Babylon incarnate uh he it was to create sort of a moon child a uh sort of antichrist type figure um that would be sort of inaugurate this sort of new age uh, in fact an interesting fact and we'll come back to some of the ufo stuff you mentioned inauguration oh, yeah. of the pleasure dome which has some nebulously sort of et iconography in it and definitely yeah. lucifer rising does Oh, for sure it literally has um, uf like egyptian ufos uh yeah in uh, 1946 and a lot of the stuff about cameron i'm drawing from an article that was written uh by brian butler who was later a collaborator a very recent actually collaborator of kenneth anger uh sort of a performance artist uh who's very into the occult and wrote an article about Cameron for uh, the Book of Lies, I believe it was called. Uh, you maybe could find it in Barnes and Noble in the occult section back in in the two thousands. Uh, I remember purchasing it in high school. But uh, <laughs> anyway, um, yeah. Uh, so in nineteen forty six, you know, when she was living with Jack Parsons, uh, she witnessed something in the sky, and she believed that it was uh, a war engine that uh, Alistair Crowley had predicted in his Book of the Law as a sign. You know. Uh, and she wrote, uh, the flying saucers, the miracle, our war machine. I saw the first one in the spring of 1946 at, uh, 10.03. Oh my God, this is the sign. Drawing of an inverted triangle within a circle appeared in the note, uh, <laughs> flying saucers. Imagine. Um, yeah. So yeah, it was actually before, uh, Kenneth Arnold had, uh, coined the term flying saucer in 1947. Uh, and wow, sort of and before Roswell. You. Yeah, but she, yeah, it was before uh, Roswell. Um, and 
yeah, and, and before, like, the even coining of the term, but I think she probably made a statement after he had done so, but she saw the sort of war engine, and I guess maybe she was attributing the uh, r- rush of flying saucer stuff to uh, this sort of uh, new awakening that was that was supposed to be happening, uh, the, the appearance of this, this war engine. And, of course, the idea of the war engine really resonates with the film that uh, you were bringing up, Scorpio Rising, this very iconic uh, Kenneth Anger movie. Um, you know, the, the, the engine, the, the machine. Um, yeah, and, uh, the big Harley Davidson get, motorcycle. Yeah, it doesn't quite get into the UFO stuff yet that appears more in, yeah, you mentioned the more ritualistic work of, of later on. But uh, yeah, that is a crazy movie uh, that maybe we should discuss. Uh, and Crowley did have some ideas about Scorpios and Scorpions. He actually wrote a play called The Scorpion, which is set amidst the crusades and is about you know the knights of malta and the knights of the temple mm, and things like that so and he talked about uh people who are uh, scorpio rising astrologically as being uh sort of having like a, a death drive or having ambitions that exceed their grasp and things like that and this is kind of uh the portrayal of the the biker the sort of uh homoerotic biker uh, nazi gang mm-hmm. in this movie uh where they're kind of uh, driven uh, towards death and they have this very uh, sort of violent uh, uh, homosocial culture amongst each other. Um, uh, yeah, it's very sort of erotic, violent culture uh, and lots of Nazi stuff. And yeah, again, it's a film that has uh, a lot of this ironic use of, of songs. Like, uh, yeah, the... The, the first, my favorite, is He's a Rebel um, by The Crystals. Yeah. And, and de- I'll probably play it in one of the interludes because it's yeah. a good song. I like it a lot. You know? Yeah. Devil in Disguise, you know, by, yeah. by Elvis. Uh, and I feel like if you have the idea in mind of this icon of Lucifer, the devil, who, who kind of thinks his ideas about me, we'll talk about it a little bit later. But, uh, you know, stuff like I'll follow him, I'll follow him, the idea of Hitler... Uh, mixing with these ideas, the devil and the, the omnipresence of skulls. There's just skulls, mm-hmm. the sort of skull and crossbones, or the Jolly Roger is everywhere in this movie. Um, and it's, yeah, it's a, uh, it, it's a, it's something. Yeah, yeah, it definitely is. So, so you know, Marjorie, uh, Jack Parsons basically, uh, well, we all know what Elron Hubbard ended up doing once he had a falling out with uh, Jack Parsons, you know, in the early 50s, he founded Scientology. Uh, Jack Parsons went on to be, you know, still a very cutting edge, top level um, rocket scientist who blew himself up in a freak accident, I want to say in like 1949. Um, in Pasadena. Um, and still, if you drive by Pasadena today, you'll still see a huge kind of futurist building that says Parsons on it. And it's connected to JPL, Jet Propulsion Laboratory, with both of which were kind of essentially founded by him and also onboarded a ton of Nazi rocket scientists after the war, which I always wonder, you know, right after World War II, when paperclip starts, even before Roswell, that's when the first UFOs start showing up in California and the Southwest. Um just a little, you know, I mean, if you want to take a sort of non-ET take uh, or hypothesis about these things, you know, is it Diglaka, you know, sort of fully realized um, or, you know, some kind of secret Nazi uh, occult technology? Anyways, um, so Cameron goes on to still become kind of a, a, a grand dame of the sort of underground L.A. occult scene and eventually, uh, you know, comes into contact 
socially with Kenneth Anger and then stars in his the sort of his first big Crowleyan experimental film inauguration of the Pleasure Dome uh, in the mid 1950s. A couple years after Jack Parsons himself died in an explosion. Yeah. Uh, and his laboratory. And Cameron would speculate that he was actually killed by Howard Hughes, who really? had asked, yeah, he'd requested Parsons' assistance with something, I guess, and Parsons refused. And I guess Howard Hughes wasn't someone who he said no to. That was uh, Cameron's speculation. But after that, you know, she continued, she was sort of introduced to the occult in a big way by Jack Parsons, but she continued to be uh, very into it. And uh, yeah, she originally in this film, uh, Inauguration of the Pleasure Dome, which is named after this whole thing in uh, Samuel Teller Coleridge's poem, uh, you know, in Xanadu to Kublai Khan, yeah, the Pleasure Dome to create, yeah, yeah. Where out so, the sacred river uh, ran through caverns, yeah. measureless demand, down to a sunless sea. Yeah. Yes, yes. Uh, and that's, that's very um, much the vibe of this movie. But uh, yeah, originally, Anais Nin. Uh, was uh, sort of set to star in the film or to be the sort of central female figure. But as soon as uh, he met Cameron, Kenneth Anger, uh, you know, was very stricken by her. And he would often say that she was like the most genuine witch that he had ever met. Uh, Someone who just really impressed him with her powers. Um, Yeah, she claimed to be a psychic in that article that you sent me. um, She claimed to be a psychic from childhood and have certain kind of, you know, woo-woo ESP powers and uh, kind of even behaved. She said, like, she would collect black cats as a child. Her grandmother thought she was, uh, who was like a fundamentalist Christian, thought she was like a devil child because she had red hair, all kinds of stuff like that. Yeah, uh, and she introduced herself to Kenneth Anger. You know, she's like, I'm the Scarlet Woman, and he was like, you certainly are, uh, <laughs> you know. Um, and that was the role she was credited. She kind of played herself as the Scarlet Woman um, in in the movie, uh, which is, yeah, kind of a masquerade ball of different gods. There's an Osiris figure um, who I... I think I'm not sure. I don't recall who plays Osiris. Uh, it was but. it was Samson Debreer, who was a famous Hollywood. Uh, he called himself a shaman, but he was oh, yeah. kind of a mm-hmm. a Thelemite. And he he had a house uh, with some bungalows down by Hollywood Forever Cemetery in Old Hollywood. And I guess for many years held these kind of underground, sort of occulty, sort of uh, salons where famous uh, celebrities and you know actors and writers and artists and uh, and various occult figures would kind of gather and uh, and hang out, and that was he was a huge um, part of the kind of Hollywood occult social circle. Um, he was a real yeah. focal point of it, and he played Shiva, Osiris, Nero, Alexand- Alessandro Cagliostro, and Aleister oh, yeah. Crowley in mm-hmm. in Pleasure Dome. Yeah, it's very vague. You know, of course, there's no dialogue in these movies. They're all. Uh, you know, silent, they, uh, and this is kind of just in this black space. One of the most uh, interesting parts of the movie is when a figure kind of walks into uh, this uh, open doorway, and on the side of the doorway are these sort of uh, cave painting-like icons with, they look like greys, basically. Uh, They look like greys. They have these Mm. sort of big eyes and sort of uh, disproportionately large heads, you know, and... uh, the doorway opens and this uh, very stark picture of like an old crone with an inverted black pentagram on her forehead appears over the doorway. And uh, <laughs> yes, it's very, uh, yeah, like, uh, and then uh, her figure kind of fades and you see the, the sigil of Baphomet that 
I think yeah. Anton LaVey actually had designed. Um, oh, okay. And, by, yeah. So did they know each other by night or that or did you watch maybe the, the 1960s like updated yeah, version he that he did? Yeah, make edits and changes to them consistently. So maybe it was changed, but I'm not sure. But yeah, definitely the sigil of Baphomet that uh, Crowley, or not Crowley, that uh, LaVey uh, created and that was associated with the Church of Satan appeared in, in what I watched. So it could have been an update. There were certain changes that... Um, yeah, he made, and yeah. It, it's it's worth mentioning that Anais Nin, even though she was passed over for the part of the Scarlet Woman, she actually does appear in uh, Pleasure Dome as Astarte, and yes. uh, and also Curtis Harrington, who we mentioned earlier, appears uh, I think in the beginning of it as Cesar Cesare, the Sleepwalker. Um, yeah. So you have and a the, lot of these. All these people are like collaborating with each other. They're all part of the same scene, and, um, and the rivalry between Anais Nin and. Uh, 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 Marjorie Cameron is really part of the sort of vague plotter or mise-en-scene of, of the movie. Um, another movie that I, I wanted to mention relative to this is Rabbit's Moon, which mm-hmm. is, uh, it, it has a great uh, soundtrack, but I think was added in the 70s. I think originally there was a different soundtrack, but uh, the new one has a loop of uh, It Came in the Night by A Raincoat. Uh, which is a very catchy song. It's very appropriate. Um, it's like it came in the night. It's like very uh, uh, spooky. Um, and all it's like all like about monster mash very kind of harlequinade. Yeah, it's a very like a commedia dell'arte type thing where uh, you know a clown is sort of in love with the moon. And I think it's interesting. You know, Jack Parsons is being sort of founder of uh, or you know big innovative figure in the world of rocketry, uh, sort of helping America to to reach the moon. And uh, you know, of course, at this time it hadn't happened. Happened and the moon still had that that, uh, that pre-moon landing uh, mystery, but there's a sort of doomed love of of the even though, well, as you say, uh, inauguration of the Pleasure Dome is much more uh, explicitly magical or overtly so. This mm-hmm. still has those sort of very iconic themes of of the the Harlequin comedia, these sort of stock types, and and of course the moon. And this is the the movie that the magic lantern kind of appears in, and the light of the magic lantern. It has a very clear visual allegory to the moon and there's this uh this very the scene the, the climactic scene is the moon starts to eclipse you know uh and it almost seems like it's the it's very sinister and very oblique but it almost seems like it's the plan of of the harlequin figure uh that this moon would eclipse and the central clown is kind of like a, a perot type figure you know that mm-hmm. that uh that classic clown with the the big buttons and everything um you know or the big like uh, po- cotton balls and the uh, the fluffy collar is kind of the main mm-hmm. character he just like falls over uh you know dead almost or, or, or uh not moving um and yeah it's uh, it's interesting to watch that in the context of the sort of astrological explorations of Kenneth Anger uh, vis-a-vis his interest in Crowley, and but also his connection with this group of people who were really involved in the development of rocketry and, and the whole space race and, and uh, sort of traveling to yeah, space. Yeah, I mean, you see you see like a, a huge convergence in Los Angeles and Pasadena in this era of sort of Hollywood filmmaking, uh, Crowleyan occultism, Nazi rocket scientists, you know, um, all kind of jumbled together um yeah in it's, uh, yeah yeah it's interesting how you you sort of see these ideas becoming like you know you mentioned uh the whether we interpret ufos as an et thing and 
I'm just very interested in, in the idea of getting away from this kind of either or, you know, uh, in terms of interpreting that phenomena. Like, mm-hmm. is it a government thing or is it somehow interdimensional? I feel like there must be, I don't know exactly how you reconcile it. You know, it's very esoteric, but I feel like there's a way to have your cake and eat it too. You know, this idea of outer space as being an interdimensional area, you know, uh, there's such a mystery to space and such a different way of conceiving space uh, mm-hmm. and the connection between outer space and inner space. And I feel like this is something that's even become mainstream. You know, I was watching a movie uh, recently, a Marvel movie, uh, which is about uh, magic and the occult. So that's kind of why I was interested in it. Uh, you know, usually I can't even bear to watch those movies. And this movie wasn't very good either. But uh, it's Doctor Strange is the name of the oh, film. Oh, yeah, yeah. Very and occulty. Yes, yes. Uh, he's a magician, uh, the eponymous Doctor Strange. But in the movie, you know, when he has this kind of mystical awakening, he kind of goes inside himself and he flies through at this tableau of outer space. And these, like, esoteric ideas are, like, in the most mainstream, like, kitschy, you know, bo- like, boring comic book movie you could possibly mm-hmm. imagine, you know, now. Uh, and yeah. it's, yeah. Um, but. Yeah, yeah, no, that is fascinating. And even to think about something like a Saturn rocket as being sort of a a magical device that can transport you to another dimension, i.e. Yeah. outer space. Right. Exactly. And then being able, I mean, yeah, actually, it, it is interesting, because then if you think about the development of satellite technology, of space weapons, of all these other things that were totally critical to the development of like the internet and communications technology that really transformed our world in the last 40 years. Um, it, it, it tracks with our earlier comparisons of like computer programming to magic and, yes. you know, the kind of the occult origins. Um, uh, somebody yes. actually, somebody commented in our SoundCloud, I feel like we were remiss to not mention it for our last episode, that pointed out that there's a, a very popular classic computer science textbook. And in the intro to that, the author explicitly makes the comparison between computer programming and magic. Yeah, and actually, now that you mentioned that, in the movie, Doctor Strange, the same allegory is made. And you can actually see that again and again, the connection between programming and magic in media that deals with the occult is mm. actually something that they constantly, it's constantly referenced as a big trope. It's not surprising to me that that's the case. Uh, mm-hmm. And I feel like I've heard that, I mean, it may originate in the world of computer science with that text, but yeah, it's uh, it's not something that we came up with. Uh, sure, sure, sure. No, yeah. no, no. Yeah, um, yeah. I've, I've seen it but, referenced before, but but it, it's I mean, kind of a thing like that a isn't computer, forgotten A, a technical wizard, a computer whiz, you know. Uh, yeah, yeah. Stuff is, yeah. <laughs> So, 
so we talked about uh, you know this 1950s movie and um he also just to throw it out there uh, there was a one, oh yeah we already mentioned like the ode artifice i don't think we need to uh, uh kind of go too deeply into it except that he did want to make this movie about a uh, 16th century occultist catholic cardinal um deste who i guess was into as in the words of Kenneth Anger, fucking goats and also into doing like golden showers and all kinds of weird, depraved sexual rituals. Um, and, Although, but I guess I that didn't work out. Things, uh, I wouldn't equate those two things, you know, uh, sure. one I feel like, uh, is like maybe in the realm of like kind of weird, but the terms of like fucking goats, uh, that's really something. But the, in terms of the goat fucking theme that comes up, Again and again, uh, I mean, once we get to Lucifer Rising, there's a key moment where uh, there's a shot of a book and you see that sort of famous statue uh, from uh, Herculaneum of Pan having sex with a goat sort of highlighted in in the film. Uh, So this is this idea of fucking goats comes up again. Uh, yeah, and of course, and of course know, goat, goats, Baphomet. You know, yeah, Baphomet, goats. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah it kind of makes sense. Um, so now, okay, that was that was all necessary information that uh, you know, it's good to know. And so now I think we can move on to the San Francisco period of Kenneth Anger's life. And um, basically, uh, well, I guess the, the first major work that he completes while living in San Francisco, which I think was done in, uh, in 1963, um, Kind of inter- interesting movie to come out like the year Kennedy was assassinated. I'm not yeah. saying there's any that link. That was but... Scorpio Rising, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, that yeah. was Scorpio Rising, and that, as we discussed, that was the one that had a lot this innovative kind of pop music montage technique that would later be popularized by people like Martin Scorsese and uh, you know Oliver Stone, Quentin Tarantino, um, and uh, and basically in terms of its content, I mean, do you want to describe a little bit of like like visually kind of what you're seeing? Scorpio Rising? Yeah, I mean, I kind of uh, alluded to it a bit before where, yeah, it's uh, very, uh, you know, voyeuristic, homoerotic uh, guys sort of working on their motorcycles, you know, putting on their clothes, sort of flexing their chests. Uh, then there's a there's a party scene, which is also kind of a masquerade, a theme that would be, be revisited in inauguration of the Pleasure Dome, where everyone's kind of masquerading as these different gods and figures. But in this case, it's more of like a very ooky spooky Halloween mask. And one of the main interesting motifs in the movie is that he intercuts this kind of mockingly with a a Jesus movie. Uh, So, like, as they're going into this sort of abandoned, derelict place to have this weird uh, uh, party, you know, it's intercut with a bunch of, like, uh, you know, Middle Eastern dudes going in to maybe see Jesus. There's a strange thing where a guy is sort of, uh, one of the bikers is... Uh, caressing his motorcycle and it's kind of intercut with Jesus uh, healing this guy's power to see and this is a part where I feel like there's this kind of very flashing very quick kind of subliminal uh, images uh, that you can see in the movie where this sort of uh, this theme of sight comes through with Jesus kind of healing uh, this person's sight uh, mm. And and he did this a couple of times. Oh, you're right. Yeah, it does flash a little bit. Uh, a yeah, couple times. Inter- yeah, interpolating. He did this a couple of times in, in his movies, interpolating scenes from earlier things. You know, he was very much the the cineast. You know, he was very uh, a connoisseur of different films. So, uh, yeah, that's a big part of the movie. And uh, this party scene, uh, you know, uh, a guy's belly gets kind of smeared with peanut butter and uh, or something, some kind of substance like that, and. Uh, 
there's like this howling, this grotesque sort of howling, and there's lots of images of Jesus and Hitler and uh, you know, and and the the uh, like I mentioned the song like I'll follow him, uh, mm-hmm. I'll follow him, you know, and uh, it's yeah, and uh, and, the, and the biker is wearing basically kind of this like this hunky sort of gay biker James Dean kind of outfit with like a tight white T-shirt and tight blue yeah. jeans and a yeah, Nazi like an SS officer's cap, right? Yeah, I think James Dean actually is depicted in the movie. Uh, mm. Like, you know, he's shown as kind of on, on pictures on the wall or something as kind of an icon of these bikers. Yeah, they have like kind of like studded jackets, they even reads Scorpio Rising uh, on them. Yeah, and this. Uh, yeah, there's kind of some cool cutaway, like fast zoom in shots to like this guy, the back of this guy's jacket with this cool kind of patch on it that's like a, a scorpion. And yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, the wall almost feels like it, it's almost parodying or i don't know like predicting kind of like teen culture in the 1960s like it's interesting it came out right before like the beatles and kind of Mm -hmm. that idea of like standing rock stars became big for the first time because yeah aren't there pictures like marilyn monroe and james dean and all these people all over this guy's wall so he's yeah. he's a little bit like a celebrity. <laughs> yeah, oh, and Hitler. but Hitler yeah. kind of insinuates himself later. Like at first, you know, it's kind of a, a, a sort of sinister presence that emerges as time goes on. The movie becomes more frenetic, and there's that scene where they're riding their bikes, and one guy sort of wipes out. Kenneth Anger would say that that guy actually died. The scene itself isn't gruesome, but he would say that that guy died and that's part of the reason why there were rumors about him maybe creating snuff films it's a climactic part of the movie i think when the song uh, point of no return is <laughs> is playing yeah uh, there's also oh, some yeah, it's a dark. yeah there's also some other ominous parts you know there's a scene of a guy putting on his rings of course these sort of bejeweled rings and there's a very prominent sort of owl sculpture you know lots yeah. of this uh, spooky uh, symbology kind of uh, occurs yeah I think, I think it's interesting when we consider later on and uh, and keep in mind, this is the guy that like prominent music video director and fashion photographer David LaChapelle, you know, said basically invented the format of the music video way back in the early 60s. And, you know, when we talk about like vigilant citizen stuff about, you know, uh, subliminal kind of, you know, images and memes and programming and like, you know, uh, Sia or Ariana Grande videos and things <laughs> like that. Um, it, it, I think uh, Scorpio Rising is really fascinating because unlike Inauguration of the Pleasure Dome, which is very overtly, exoterically like an occult Crowleyan ritual, the the kind of ritualistic symbolism is still there in Scorpio Rising, but it's been sort of hidden behind this veil of American pop culture and kind of contradictory to the normal viewer, kind of contradictory symbols like, uh, you know, Harley Davidson motorcycles, uh, leather jacket kind of James Dean guy and then Hitler. You know, and and it's kind of like, huh, well, like a normal American would kind of think, well, what's the what's the association with those things? Like, what's he trying to say here? And I think, uh, you know, maybe this is like an early attempt uh, or maybe later music videos. uh, it, It seems like there's like five music video directors that direct most of the big pop videos anymore anyway. So. It wouldn't surprise me too much if, like, a couple of them were, you know, Crowleyites, then, yeah, you know, they would draw inspiration. Fans, at least, you know. Yeah, oh, yeah, like, I'm uh, sure, I'm sure. I mean, like we said, like, if you go to film school or something, there people are going to talk pretty glowingly about uh, Kenneth Anger. If you look at any of his interviews on YouTube, uh, like Nicholas Winding Refn, um, who is almost a very, like, Angarian kind of filmmaker, 
in a lot of ways, like really doesn't like dialogue, really likes these slow kind of dark, like, like hypnotic sort of satanic. I mean, if you watch his film, uh, the, uh, oh God, what was it? Um, the neon demon that was like his kind of LA film about a model that falls victim to a coven of cannibalistic witches. That is like very Angarian, and you know the and P, he interviewed Kenneth Anger maybe ten or twelve years ago, and just was like, oh, like couldn't be more glowing towards him, and and nobody really challenges him or says anything critical, and he's very negative towards anybody that brings up subjects that he doesn't want to talk about. Yeah, like we read those articles in Esquire and on ArtNews.com, I guess, where the both interviewers kind of were bringing up the Manson murders and things like that, and they both talked about how he got very. Kurt and just wouldn't even, you know, one of my favorite parts was they asked him, like, what do you consider your film's magical rituals? Which something that he's like said or, or implied before, so it's strange he doesn't want to talk about it, but uh, his response was just, hmm. And then just said nothing in response at all. And I <laughs> I remember I watched, uh, you know, in preparation for this, this podcast, I watched uh, a talk he did at UCLA as part of the sort of Hammer lecture series, and he said, you know, I don't do Q&As. I've stopped doing Q&As. I'll answer letters, but I, I don't do Q&As. Uh, he's a famously very private person, and even his his speech, which was about, supposed to be about, it was sort of uh, programming related to an art exhibit on, on the occult, and he just kind of did like a Wikipedia summary of Crowley's life, some of the facts of which were kind of wrong, and he you know, just really avoided any discussion of, of his own work or anything like that. You know, in these interviews, people asked him, I remember in one of the articles where people asked him, you know, what's your, what do you think your legacy is? And he's something like, well, I've done a lot of creative work, so I hope that's my legacy, which is <laughs> such like a, you know, like, come on. So, yeah. I think he very... said in the Art Now interview something like, whatever, I'm a filmmaker, and then added for emphasis, like, I don't care yeah the guy had periods in it and he was like he had it with a sneer like i really period don't period care yeah period. you know yeah and it's just yeah um well i so, mean if, if the real history of whatever he was up to during his life is kind of never going to get written then i wouldn't care about my public legacy either yeah one you know of what i mean like it's like the people he... who know are gonna know what he did but uh and i think now we can start to uh, you know talking about the uh the influence and uh, of Scorpio rising. Now, this is where it starts to get like very interesting with the sort of rise of his career, because this movie is noticed by the Ford Foundation. And yeah. in 1964, as a result of seeing Scorpio rising, they give him a $10,000 filmmakers grant. Uh, they gave it to, I think, 10 of there were 10 filmmakers total. And Kenneth Anger was one of them. And uh, and he got $10,000, which, you know, was a lot more back then, um, specifically to make a project that he had pitched to the Ford Foundation, which was called Custom Car Commandos. And yes, that is custom with a K, car with a K, commandos with a K. So <laughs> like KKK. Um, yeah, and this movie ended up being, like, three minutes long, yeah. you know, which is significantly shorter than Scorpio Rising, which I think was at least pushing the 20-minute mark, but yeah. I don't know what happened, what he was doing with that money, but 
Uh, they, 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 I think they say that, oh, well, he just lived on it and, like, frittered it away. And, like, he, he got one over on the Ford Foundation. Like, he tricked them to, like, give him $10,000. But you know what? Let's talk about the Ford Foundation for a second because <laughs> these are not dumb people, okay? And these are people that if you, if you look at their history, we mentioned in the last episode, they started giving money to KPFA and Pacifica Radio in 1951 um, and were deeply involved in funding all kinds of like ostensibly left wing but like anti-communist leftist kind of artistic publications and endeavors um, and kind of NGO initiatives. They did a lot of work around the world, often serving as a CIA front for various covert operations and things like that. And so anybody that got a big fat check from the Ford Foundation, especially somebody who is so marginal and is doing such kind of shocking, blatantly kind of satanic kind of filmmaking – um, is very, very interesting. And now, of course, not everybody uh, who got that is, like, evil. Like, I looked at the list of the other filmmakers. It includes the one guy who I think made the film The Exiles, which is about young Native Americans in 1950s Los Angeles, which is, like, a really great independent movie. And there were other people that were just kind of, like, uh, kind of woo-woo experimental filmmakers and stuff. So I can't assume that they're all, you know, sinister, but why Kenneth Anger? That's the kind of the question. And, um, yeah, I mean, they, uh, they gave him all this money and, uh, and then, and, and the idea of him bringing them this idea for like KKK custom car commandos, which I don't know. I feel like any normal person would be like, what, what, what are you trying to say there? Like KKK, like, and so to discuss the the very brief content of Custom Car Commandos, it's kind of similar to the first part of Scorpio Rising, um, yeah, where like there's a, a song stage. Yeah, it's like on a sound stage. I mean, it's like well produced for like yeah. the early '60s. I mean, he he shoots on a dolly. He's shooting, I, I think, 16 millimeter. You know, the it's colors and the lighting are very motorcycles. Yeah, like it's kind of yeah, Custom Car Commandos, but yeah, um, and and it's kind of again similar to the last time. It's kind of a tight jeans wearing like homoerotic young yeah. man working on a hot rod car in on like a sound stage and it has a lot of like slow tracking shots like very eroticized um shots of like the internal engine and the pistons and this guy is kind of like shining like wiping the chrome onto uh you know, the different mechanical parts of this car. And then he gets into it and like drives off. And that's the end of that. And and while angel baby, uh, the doo-wop song is playing, um, another good song. (laughs) Was I want to say there was a death involving custom car commandos, or maybe that was uh, Lucifer rising where a young boy died. Apparently, one of the reasons why the film was so short was because the main actor died in a drag race. So oh, this is something okay. where a lot of uh, uh, Kenneth Anger's collaborators would die. <laughs> um, <laughs> granted, he was filming people who were kind of living on the edge, doing these things, drag racing, riding motorcycles. He himself, uh, I remember uh, reading one of his comments was like, I would never ride. Mo- I mean, I'm ridden in the back, but it's just too, you know, which is uh, funny. But yeah, he. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so. 
There you yeah, go. and uh, and I mean, it, it's also interesting that it comes out kind of, I, I think Cousin Car Commandos is 1965, because uh, mm-hmm. it would have been after the Ford Foundation grant, but it's kind of uh, going back to p- other filmmakers that were obsessed with Flash Gordon and grew up in California. You know, when George Lucas made American yeah. Graffiti in the early 70s, that's mm-hmm. I think takes place in 1962 in Modesto, in kind yeah. of central California, but that's all about hot rod culture, and, uh, and, and you know, yeah, the hot rod culture was kind of a very big thing in the The 50s and early 60s yeah the connection to flash gordon and george lucas and that stuff is very interesting uh it's not something that necessarily occurred to me but it's definitely there like the same sort of camp and even like the occultic elements like you can go we really like one day maybe like when they finally put out another star wars movie or something should do an episode about like the susness of star wars itself but sure uh, sure. we can't go Uh, down that that rabbit's hole or that i think there's a i mean yeah, just think of like the the Sith. Well, I yeah. wonder what that could have been inspired mm, yeah. by. Maybe a certain temple of Sith. Yeah. Um, mm. You know, um, it's like but... who, like basically like the Emperor is like Michael Aquino. <laughs> they do have a sort of similarity, uh, but. Uh, yeah, so, uh, Custom Car... Oh, yeah, I was gonna say that I read on, uh, Kenneth Anger's Wikipedia article, uh, under, like, the bottom section, where it's the controversy or something, uh, or views or something like that, uh, it says that he made a remark that was, like, I'm to the right of the KKK when it comes to black people, but then, oh, like, yeah, the very he did. next he did sentence is, like, oh, this was a, a Crowleyan joke, like, alright, like, but there's no, like, he didn't say that was a joke or anything, it's just, like, oh, okay, well, he's joking, like, Once again, and, yeah, I mean, how many times do we have to go through it? Like, like yeah. Michael Aquino clutching an SS dagger, Nicholas Shrek saying he wants to wipe out the entire human race. Uh, <laughs> like, you know, uh, Anton LaVey lifting his whole thing from, like, yeah. Magnus Redbeard or whatever the fuck his no, name is. Like, oh, Midas great Wright. Kenneth Anger, you know, it's just like... Uh, yeah, Boyd like, Rice wearing a Nazi yeah. necklace and a shirt that says rape, but he's not really a Nazi. Like, yeah, exactly. come on. Just like, how many... Yeah, How many or times being are people in a band called War shit? Crime, hanging a swastika on your wall. Oh, uh, yeah, no, just like exploring your intergenerational trauma by buying uh, an SS yeah, flag exactly. and hanging it on the uh, wall. Yeah, LOL, writing songs CIA, about genociding LOL. Arabs. It's all just a funny, <laughs> ironic joke. And, Arabs you know, are yeah, smelliest like men on the planet. Like yeah. Uh, yeah. Mm, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, uh, interesting. <laughs> Those who um, know will know. weirdness circles of San Francisco when he moves there in the early 60s and particularly uh, 
he became friends with a, a character that we've mentioned several times in, I think, every episode so far, um, which is Anton LaVey. He becomes very close friends with Anton LaVey in the early 60s. Actually, several years before Anton LaVey founds the Church of Satan in 1966. So uh, just reading off LaVey's Wikipedia here, uh, LaVey became a local celebrity in San Francisco in the early 60s through his paranormal research and live performances as an organist, including playing the Wurlitzer at the Lost Weekend Cocktail Lounge. He was also a publicly noticeable figure. He drove a coroner's van around town, and he walked his pet black leopard named Zoltan. He attracted many San Francisco notables to his parties. Guests included Karine de Placine, Michael Harner, Chester A. Arthur III, who's the grandson of former president Chester A. Arthur, Forrest J. Ackerman, Fritz Lieber, Cecil E. Nixon, and Kenneth Anger. Uh, now, this is interesting. I did not know this. LeVay formed a group called the Order of the Trapezoid. Yeah. Did you, did you know that? Yes, I did. The Order of the Trapezoid is something that has existed, like, as pre-existed the Church of Satan, existed all through the Church of Satan, and then went to the Temple of Set. Uh, I, yeah, I'm not sure if there's other Orders of the Trapezoid. Obviously, the Order of the Trapezoid within the Temple of Set is claimed to be the sort of successor to the Order of the Trapezoid, but yeah, the... The Order of the Trapezoid uh, predates the Temple of Set. And the Trapezoid, you know, the idea that, uh, you know, obtuse angles are magically powerful, you know, and uh, so the Trapezoid is a magically powerful shape, you know, the, the, pentagram, the pentagram you can draw, like, within the Trapezoid, it's, yeah. And, and presumably, uh, maybe Kenneth Anger was a part of the Order of the Trapezoid, the original Order yeah, of the well, Trapezoid. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. Was he? Uh, does it confirm that well, he was? Or he was part clear? of the. He was part of the quote magic circle. So mm-hmm. that basically coincides with, and, and they were very, very close friends. And actually, yeah, it would make sense. Yeah, so much so that later on in 1960s, I believe it was in 1966. Um, Kenneth Anger became the godfather of Zena LaVey, later Zena Shrek, now Zena. <clears throat> and uh and yeah, was a was a constant presence uh in the lives of the LaVeys. And he was there through the time when Anton LaVey founded and kind of went public with the Church of Satan, though Kenneth Anger always takes offense when people ask him if he is a Satanist, which is, again, one of these kind of things that people do where they get so offended that, you know, because he's a Thelemite, he's a Crowleyan, he's not a Satanist. But it was during this time in the 1960s when uh, he was hanging out with Anton LaVey where Kenneth Anger got the word Lucifer tattooed on his chest in large letters. Yeah. So so I mean, are we aren't we kind of splitting hairs here, Lucifer, yeah, Satan, etc. Splitting hairs. Well, I mean, yeah, but those are the hairs that he splits. Like, uh, we'll get into this with Lucifer rising. Like, he sees Lucifer as you know the light bringer, the morning star, a positive figure. I feel like for Kenneth Anger, Lucifer is like a sexy, like slutty little twink. Uh, <laughs> you know, like the ideal, like like you know, uh, and this sort of idealized figure. Like that's. I feel like there's been many sort of figures in his life, many cabana boys that sort of have represented Lucifer to him. Uh, I think that uh, you could say Bobby Boussole was even one of them. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I, yeah, I think that this kind of, like, Adonis, like, beautiful figure. I mean, that's how uh, Crowley saw Lucifer, you know, uh, when uh, Kenneth Anger made his Lucifer Rising movie. He was inspired originally by Crowley's hymn to Lucifer. So, yeah, it's hairs, but uh, it's splitting hairs. Lucifer is Satan, but 
uh, those are the hairs that these people split, they do want to uh, create a difference. Um, so, yeah, I mean, is yeah. it... Though, though I mean, notably, it? his like, friend, uh, Anton Le- Yeah, his friend, Anton LaVey, you know, chose the other path and decided yeah. to kind of very theatrically embrace the figure of Satan, which they, they yeah. said they, they didn't completely agree in all their occult beliefs, but they had enough in common to be really, really good friends uh, to this day. Yeah. And I think... And an uh, invocation of my demon brother, which... Uh, you know, yes. the kind of thing a movie that Anton LaVey appears in, you know, he's wearing his classic satanic horned, uh, you know, cloak and, and hood. Um, so, yeah, I think that he definitely, and he definitely, you know, he displayed that Baphomet sigil, which is a Church of Satan icon in at least one of the edits of Inauguration of the Pleasure Dome. So, yeah. you know, it's, yeah, and he was very much into this stuff, but again, yeah, it's completely like a a faint, uh, a, a splitting of hairs, a dodge. He's depicted his beliefs in many different ways. You know, he said like, "Oh, I'm a pagan. I'm I'm a nature worshiper." But Baphomet yeah. is just a peaceful nature god, guys. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, yeah, and and to to bring up like uh, like Anton um, Anton Lavey. Sorry, I'll come back to whatever I was thinking in a second. But I do want to mention that in 1966, the same year the Church of Satan was founded, Kenneth Anger released a re-edited version of Inauguration of the Pleasure Dome uh, that he started screening at midnight movie houses around San Francisco. And he called this the Sacred Mushroom Edition. And apparently the inspiration for that is that Kenneth Anger had been experimenting with psychedelics since... uh, Really, I think even since the late 1940s, when he was a college student at USC, I think he first discovered mescaline, and he had experimented with LSD and uh, psilocybin mushrooms and things like that. And his intention with the Sacred Mushroom Edition was to kind of add more, I guess what you would call psychedelic cuts and visuals and auditory experiences into Inauguration of the Pleasure Dome. And that is very interesting, because first of all, like we hadn't... Uh, mentioned it the first time around, but um, Inauguration of the Pleasure Dome is kind of notable as I would say one of the first movies that sort of established what would later become a what you, what you could call a psychedelic aesthetic. Even though this is in 1954, interestingly, like one year after MK Ultra began, but but you know at the time there was no kind of uh, public awareness of there was very little public awareness yeah. of psychedelics, and he was really one of the pioneers of. I mean, if, and it is genuinely, I think, from a pure artistic perspective impressive the kind of visual effects that he gets out of the lighting and i mean marjorie yeah. cameron appears to be basically like kind of glowing in this like fuchsia neon light yeah the, and the bird there's kind of kaleidoscopic head woman yeah yeah there's like kaleidoscopic um, photography all these things yeah. that we would now associate with like the 1960s like jefferson airplane and grateful dead and all these things but as we've discussed yeah. about the I grateful mean, it's very similar, actually, to the Holy Mountain, where the characters are kind of these godlike personages. Uh, it's similar to the Jodorowsky movie, The Holy Mountain, mm. in that way. Uh, Which yeah, I haven't and, uh, seen, so I can't call. I've seen visuals from it, and I would agree yeah, that well, it has that kind of classic, glowing. 
yeah psychedelic movie like technicolor yeah, psychedelic technicolor thing and i think this, yeah yeah in the same way that uh the augers of the pleasure dome the characters is kind of a masquerade of different deities which was based on uh, a practice that kind of thing had read about from crowley where uh you know a masquerade with attendees sort of impersonating various gods um you know well, he went to a party didn't he in malibu uh, I think he went to a part of like dress up as your madness that kind yeah. of became. But I, I I think that Crowley also sort of described events like this where uh, attendees or members of a magical organization would dress up as as different deities. Um, but yeah, I think that that is something that he credited as being inspiration, sort of a dress up as your madness type thing. Uh, mm-hmm. But yeah, in the movie they kind of correspond to these, and then the Holy Mountain the. Uh, the characters kind of uh, represent astrological signs. It's very similar. It's much like bigger budget, like feature length, you know, and very archetypal uh, psychedelic movie. Uh, but this doesn't have to do with psychedelia. But one thing that actually impressed me, uh, and this does, you know, it's not that surprising because Kenneth Anger was pretty erudite, but in inauguration of the Pleasure Dome when uh, Osiris is kind of being fed sort of this wafer and then sort of comes to life, this actually is kind of uh, reflective of actual ancient Egyptian ritual practice, the ritual of opening the mouth, whereby uh, power or life force was thought to come to, to mummies after they were embalmed. Their mm. sort of mouths were ritually open. They were, they, it was done in many different ways, you know, whether through uh, sacrifice, animal sacrifice, but uh, a lot of time, yeah, the opening of the mouth is, so that was a, a pretty accurate recreation of that. Um, and uh, yeah, it's uh, an interesting part. Yeah, yeah, and and I, I just think it's worth noting that I think it's interesting that he takes this film, which was a very, it seems, prescient uh, example of psychedelic cinema, and then sort of doubles down on that and enhances the psychedelic qualities of it in 1966, like right on the eve of LSD being made illegal. I think it was in like late 66 when it was finally federally outlawed, but like right on the cusp of the summer of love and the big psychedelic explosion. And as we'll see, like not only is Kenneth Anger deeply involved in what you could call the birth of the sixties counterculture, he's also involved or he's connected. He's like one degree of connection away from the two events that would effectively end and kill off the sixties counterculture, which were the Manson murders and Altamont. Yeah. <laughs> um, but we'll, we'll, we'll get to that shortly, but yeah. And, and I think of like the acid parties that Ken Kesey was throwing on the Stanford campus in 1964 and 65, um, that were sponsored by MK ultra and featured the local house band who became the grateful dead and how Basically, I read the other day that there was it was almost like a kind of A-B testing with uh, the Grateful Dead playing. Basically, they would split the acid test party kind of into two separate rooms. And in one room, I think it would be kind of more serene and maybe kind of like a, a group encounter therapy sort of a, or maybe a kind of religious kind of thing. And then the other room was like the psychedelic party where you had this blues mm-hmm. band, uh, the Grateful Dead rocking out, and then people were projecting all kinds of different light projections and messing around with the audio system and doing things like that. And the, and the people that were running the acid test realized that acid was like much more... Uh, it was potentiated much more from like the psychedelic Grateful Dead party than it was by the other stuff. And so it's just interesting that then um, Kenneth Anger, like right at the eve of like the LSD explosion is serving up this 
media that is kind of you know establishes kind of this psychedelic aesthetic and uh, and yeah I mean I don't I don't know kind of deeper you know was he a test subject for MK Ultra the way that Ken Kesey and Allen Ginsberg were maybe I, I haven't seen any proof of that yet um, but you know he was uh, he was deeply in the mix here yeah and uh, and so then he would go on to make. Point. Oh, sorry. Go on. I, yeah. Oh, I think that at one point he meant for this movie to be played on three separate screens. I think I'm thinking of the right one. Yeah, uh, there was this three-screen version that was shown at the Brussels World's Fair. Um, so yeah, it makes it more of a, a multimedia type of experience the way that it was conceived earlier. Um, yeah. 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 And, and interesting, this is also post uh, him getting money from the Ford Foundation, which, like, as we've said, was so heavily involved in so-called countercultural activities in the San Francisco Bay Area during this exact time that, mm-hmm. you know, they dumped a bunch of money on him. And all he produced exoterically was this three minute, like, Nazi hot rod movie <laughs> um, yeah. with, like, the KKK title. Um and which, you know, totally syncs up with Anton LaVey's politics and Michael Aquino's politics and pretty much every other and Charles Manson's politics, um, you know, which is basically like a weird veneration of like the Klan and uh, and Nazis and things like that. Yeah. Although, uh, the, yeah, the movie inauguration of the Pleasure Dome is from before, I guess, uh, even Scorpio Rising. But, yeah, the edit yeah. you're talking about when he revisited it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and, and it made was it kind shown of... often throughout the 60s, 70s, and 80s uh, in yeah. that more psychedelic form, yeah. I, exactly. So then moving on to his next film is The Invocation of My Demon Brother, which, as we mentioned, stars Anton LaVey, and I think was filmed in his black house, his famous house where the magic circle and the order of the trapezoid would meet and where the Church of Satan was run out of. And, um, you know, it's a little more ornate, a little more high budget, but it's still it's going back to the kind of the, 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 the concept of Pleasure Dome, where it's basically like a Crowleyan satanic ritual uh, featuring a, a a soundtrack by none other than Mick Jagger. Yes, and I and believe that Chris Jagger is in the movie. Are you uh, Mick Jagger? Uh, uh, Chris Jagger, I think. or And Mick Jagger, I think, is in it, too. Or is he in Lucifer Rising? I don't think he uh, ever appeared in any of them. But wait, who is Chris Jagger? His brother? Uh, his brother, yeah. Oh, okay, okay. His brother may have been in... Oh, yeah, he was in Lucifer Rising. But I think Mick Jagger does appear very briefly in Invocation of My Demon Brother. Um, yeah, yeah, that, that's possible. At this time, and they they entered into a much deeper relationship, kind of uh, in the very late '60s and early '70s, when uh, Kenneth Anger once again spent some time over in Europe. But this, the, another yeah. interesting thing about kind of like technological. I don't know about electronic warfare, if you will. <laughs> I don't know how connected this is, but the the soundtrack, which by the way is like not very good, um, it's more of like a stunt because this is like this was apparently the first film soundtrack to be composed on a Moog synthesizer, mm, um, yeah. and it's kind of just like a Morse code, like repetitive, like maybe I'll play a second of it here. Score sucks, yeah. It sucks. It's not very good. Like, compared to Bobby Beausoleil's Lucifer Rising score, it is dog shit. Yeah. But, Bob, actually, a lot of this movie was, according to Kenneth Anger, uh, kind of compiled from some scraps. That's why Bobby Beausoleil kind of appears in this. Scraps of Lucifer Rising were sort of reused uh, for Invocation of My Demon Brother. And this was all 
kind of around his interaction, as you said, you know, involving Altamont, uh, uh, or his connection to Altamont. This is, is all, like, uh, around his very close relationship with Keith Richards and with Mick Jagger, and actually for a while, he was supposed to officiate a uh, Thelemic or uh, Satanic wedding, or at least a pagan wedding, yeah. between uh, Keith Richards and his uh, girlfriend, um, yeah. uh, Pallenberg. Pallenberg. Anita yeah, Pallenberg? Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, and then there's, like, some confusion where apparently Keith Richards said he got tired of all the occulty stuff and kicked him out, but then Kenneth Anger said, I don't remember that Claim they didn't that remember way. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> um, but, yeah, the and, story goes, according to the Art News article, uh, the story goes that Pallenberg and Richards awoke one morning to find the doors of their home off their hinges and painted gold, the color of Satan's aura, according to magic teachings. Um, yeah, so yeah. Richards was exhausted by that, and he called the ceremony to anger out of the house. Um, yes, but and yeah, so they were all like very much pulled into the Thelemic world of uh, Kenneth Anger at that time, and he would just like you know he hung out at their house, and I think yeah. he lived with them for a while. Oh yeah, yeah, Bobby um, Beausoleil, who was like a kind of a fixture both in San Francisco and Los Angeles. He was briefly, um, he was briefly, I think, the bassist uh, for a Laurel Canyon, Los Angeles psychedelic rock group named Love, which is actually like a pretty good band, but. They were one of the earliest psychedelic rock groups, uh, kind of along with the birds, to come out of Los Angeles. And so he played with them for a while. He also appears in a very obscure um, movie called Mondo Hollywood that came out, I think, in 68 or 69 that features, like, Frank Zappa uh, and also features Bobby Beausoleil as just sort of like a young dude running around in, like, the hills of Los Angeles. Um, And... uh, uh, that movie's online somewhere. You can find it. And, uh, you know, he and he lived with uh, Kenneth Anger in San Francisco for a while. And I think also, I don't know if Bobby Beausoleil was like a, uh, a, a card carrying member of the Church of Satan. Um, I don't know if he was, but uh, but he was definitely like in that mix with everybody. And just to kind of like drive it home um, that. uh that another person uh, who would be involved in killing somebody for Charles Manson was also a member of the Church of Satan, and that was Susan Atkins, who was actually, like, the main killer, along with Tex Watson, at the Cielo House, who I believe she's the one who stabbed Sharon Tate, like, 35 times in the stomach and and, uh, and all that. And she started out as a performer at Anton LaVey's burlesque shows in San Francisco and then later uh, performed in a few vampiric sort of rituals uh, that, that, you know, involved nudity and kind of dancing and and stuff like that and then eventually drifted on to join the Manson family and then went down to Los Angeles and Bobby Beausoleil did the same thing. Um, And uh, I'll just read, like, a little quote from the Art News article kind of about Beausoleil. Um... If fireworks in Scorpio Rising suggested a loose interpretation of Sodom and Gomorrah, the actual filming of Lucifer Rising was more like the real thing. Another actor Anger cast in the movie was Bobby Beausoleil, who lived with Anger for some time in San Francisco and would later go on to kill the first victim of the Manson bloodbath, Gary Hinman, a Ph.D. candidate at UCLA and a musician who grew mescaline in his basement. A motorcycle gang called the Straight Satans claimed that Hinman's batch of mescaline was actually strychnine and Beausoleil went to Hinman's place with a knife and a handgun asking for
for the gang's money back. The encounter escalated from there. After Manson slashed Hinman's ear, Bosley stabbed him twice in the heart and scrawled political piggy on the wall in his blood. Two weeks later, Manson and his followers murdered Sharon Tate, Wojciech Furkowski, Abigail Folger, another heir to a foundational American fortune, Folger's Coffee, Jay Sebring, and Stephen Parent at 150 Cielo Drive. But all of this, Anger said, quote, had nothing to do with me. Um, yeah, um, yeah, funny so, detail okay. that I read uh, elsewhere, or interesting detail that I read elsewhere, was that he tried to make a paw print in the blood in addition to writing Political Piggy to try to implicate the Black Panthers in accordance yes. with the sort of helter-skelter doctrine. sort of uh, rock star connection. It was actually uh, John Paul Getty Jr., who was a huge patron of Anger, we've mentioned on the show before, who first invited him to uh, to London, where he I guess we can't. I, I guess we can't ignore it any later, uh, any longer, dear listeners, but yes, what you heard is correct. Uh, the main benefactor of Kenneth Anger from the late 1960s uh, up through at least the 2000s, because he was producing, you know, exa- financing uh, additional films of his, was, yes, the person that we talked about in episode two, who was in business with SS Hauptschirmfuhrer Otto von Bolschwing in California with Gavin Newsom's dad, J. Paul Getty Jr. Yes. <laughs> like, uh, yeah, I, I actually, did not know that until yesterday, and I freaked out when I saw it because I it learned just, during Jesus. yeah it's too much I learned during my research for this that he's actually in the Guinness Book of World Records or was at one point for being the richest private citizen um, you know like someone who's not considered to be a public citizen but uh, I guess yeah uh, he at one time had the record for that and yeah Kenneth Anger mentioned him a lot uh, in that talk that I listened to of his at uh, Hammer uh, or part of the Hammer series at UCLA mm-hmm. he you know was t- complaining about how when John Paul Getty Jr. died you know he didn't have a patron anymore and his w- apparently he had like carte blanche to just take any Virgin Airlines flight this is a while ago you know he had carte blanche to take any Virgin Airlines flight anywhere in the world but when John Paul Getty Jr. died his wife Victoria uh, you know, just cut him off or whatever, uh, Lady Victoria, whatever, you know. Um, the Gettys love cutting off their, their heirs and their, you know, people that yeah, are Yeah, well, he didn't the, write a will. Kenneth Anger seemed very upset about it, you know. He was very catty about, about this. But, yeah, uh, the whole Mouse Heaven movie that maybe we'll talk about later on in greater detail, which is just, like, this bizarre film of Mickey Mouse paraphernalia. Uh, John Paul Getty Jr. was apparently very enthusiastic about filming that and was, yeah, he was a huge patron of Kenneth Anger, and uh, he apparently was even at the time when he, you know, first invited him to London, and he started to hang out with John Lennon, Yoko Ono, and then eventually he started living with 
uh, Mick Jagger and and uh, his girlfriend and, and Marion Faithful. Richard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, who yeah. also became a big Thalamite. They all did. They all fell in with it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, and, and Marianne Faithful would go on to basically star in his next film, which is maybe one of his best-known ones and probably the one which sucked the most amount of big A-list names into it, which was Lucifer Rising. Yeah, and Lucifer Rising was conceived sort of as an answer to uh, Scorpio Rising, where Scorpio Rising kind of the dark image of maybe the American youth in the way that you talked about, and it's supposed to be a positive image of the American youth, you know, the, the rising of this, of this great new era. In fact, I think at, uh, one point, I, there's a rumor, at least, that there was some footage filmed of, you know, young hippie-type people sort of praying at the San Andreas Fault for doing a ritual at the San Andreas Fault or something to try to bring a cleansing earthquake to destroy the, the evil older generation, um, which, you know, in 1971 there was a devastating earthquake, but, uh, you know... Uh, uh, Don't trust anyone over 30, man. Yeah. Oh, um, God. So, yeah, uh, that was kind of... I guess that footage, whether if it ever existed, didn't really make it into the final movie, which is... Yeah, sort of like a, a Cecil B. the Mill type pastiche. Yeah, like it's visually interesting. It's very uh, like uh, Egyptian inspired. There's some shots of Stonehenge and stuff. Uh, and the pyramids of Giza, the Sphinx. Yeah, some of it was shot in Egypt. You know, it's yeah. I was saying before we started recording, it's just so odd to me that he showed parts of this. You know, to some people like Joe Dorowski was there, Dennis Hopper was there. You know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and somehow, just based on some video of him as like a magus pacing around a magic circle, uh, presumably the, the one in the movie, which is uh, a Crowleyan circle, which is inscribed with uh, the Thelemic gods of Lucifer, Nuit, Hadith, Chaos, Lilith, Babylon, and Ra, Hor, Quit. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. uh, they were like, "Oh, we gotta give you like you know fifteen thousand pounds to go make it, to go finish." <laughs> well, this actually, wait, movie. Re- rewind that because because that, that wasn't the Ford Foundation, but what group was? that that gave him 15,000 pounds it was to- like the national film council um it i uh, what is the exact name of the group uh i have to uh look up who actually it was it was the uh national film finance corporation uh which could, apparently they were convinced by his film Lucifer Rising Part 1, which was him dancing around a magic circle, to give him uh, 15,000 pounds. Um, so, and so the, yeah, and also that's from to the be unauthorized clear, biography of Kenneth Anger that you mentioned. Um, yeah, and to be clear, that was a British uh, f- film funding agency that operated from 1949 until it was wound up in 1985. Yeah, and there was some controversy around it. Uh, there was apparently a Sunday Telegraph article uh, complaining about, you know, this devil film will get state aid uh, and things like that. But, uh, yeah, so uh, this movie is, uh, most of it is just these strange sort of ritual films. Like you said, yeah, Marianne Faithful is a big part of it. She's kind of doing these, uh, you know, rituals around Stonehenge. She's kind of walking up into this blazing pyre uh again there's some egyptological stuff there's uh the great sphinx is depicted and things like that the the part to me that really stands out is again chris jagger is in this uh, in a brief part the part to me that really sticks out is that at the end there's like a very clear ufo 
reference, you know, where UFOs kind of appear one by one and eventually kind of crowd the heavens. And there's this image of these alien beings kind of ascending towards a great serpent that sort of appears at the the very, very end. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's, yeah, this is kind of his image of the new dawn that's going to occur. The the flying saucers play a big role in this. Uh, But it was... uh, yeah, it was a very problematic filming process because, as you said, Altamont kind of happened, and after the, you know, the Hell's Angels. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, thing, let, yeah. let's um, let me see. Uh, I need to find the name of the guy. Um, but yeah, it's just circling back to um to Altamont because we you know we sort of mentioned uh that you know Kenneth Anger was sort of in this milieu of people who. Um, who were ended up being involved in the Manson murder um, in 1969. But then the other event that sort of put the nail in the coffin of the 1960s was the Altamont Free Concert in 1969, which was held at the Altamont Speedway um, in, in the Bay Area. And the Rolling Stones were the headliner of that event. And I believe, if I remember correctly... Mick Jagger showed up uh, by he arrived via helicopter and he was riding with Timothy Leary. <laughs> so, you know, already bad omens everywhere. Uh, I don't trust that guy, you know, as far as I can throw him. And mm-hmm. basically the whole structure of this was designed in a very bad way. I mean, for whatever you could say about the the messiness of Woodstock, which was earlier that year, this was supposed to be sort of a, a Woodstock of the West Coast. But from the beginning, it, it, it just had these aspects to it. For one, it was sort of built on a sloping hillside where the stage was at the bottom of a hill. So kind of like they were the audience sort of had the high ground and the stage was about two feet tall. So basically people were just standing right in front of the Rolling Stones and all these other bands that were playing. And because, you know, they weren't elevated, the Rolling Stones wanted to hire security and they ended up hiring the Hells Angels, uh, who, you know, just like we said, the straight Satans were involved in the Manson family murder of Gary Hinman. The Hells Angels were super wrapped up with everything. Go- you know, the Hells Angels, most people don't know, were founded in Oakland in the early 19, I think the early 1960s, uh, ironically, like right down the street from the Black Panthers um, and around the same time. But uh, if you dig a, just dig a little bit deep, you know, regardless of what, uh, regardless of how Hunter Thompson immortalized them, uh, they're basically a bunch of like Nazi drug dealing thugs, basically. And they, you know, they hung out with Anton LaVey and all of these occulty kind of people. And I mean, their fucking name is the Hells Angels. Okay, so they got hired apparently for like 500 cases of beer. They agreed to provide security. One of the individuals who acted, uh, who played a part in both Invocation of My Demon Brother and Lucifer Rising was a Hell's Angel biker named Bill Fritsch. And he was actually one of the Hell's Angels that was providing security during the Ultimate Concert, where basically uh, kind of a near riot broke out. Wall, by the way, the Stones were playing Sympathy for the Devil. 
yeah. which song was a song inspired by yeah their connection with Velma and, and by Kenneth Anger. Yeah. Yes, yes. Basically, that song was something they came up with while Kenneth Anger was living with them in England, and basically they recorded it as a kind of tribute to their new friend and uh, maybe the kind of perspectives they were gaining from. So yeah, while the, while Sympathy of the Devil, their girlfriends did back up and everything. So yeah, it was a whole yeah day. yeah yeah they did uh, they did uh, yeah Marianne Faithful Anita Pallenberg who appeared yeah. in in these movies as well, and um and during the performance of this song there was some kind of scuffle that broke out and uh and basically uh somebody in the crowd was kind of assaulted by a hell's angel this guy pulled a gun out and then another hell's angel stabbed this guy to death and that was a uh a, a that was a young black man named meredith i want to say meredith james um and uh and then that was you know joan didion says this very famously that like the two events that basically ended the quote-unquote 60s were the manson murders in august 1969 and then the ultimate concert uh shortly thereafter and you know i think i've heard a lot of speculation about like what really happened um there was speculation that um that basically uh, Meredith maybe had taken some bad acid that was going around, and this is this is also a a trope that you hear throughout the summer of love and going into Woodstock. Um, there was a type of drug called STP, which was like a kind of psychedelic speed that made people freak out and have really <laughs> bad trips. There was the the sort of a notorious quote unquote brown acid that would give people bad trips. And you know, if you know anything about like the pharmacology of LSD, there are a lot of different analogs and variations of it that you can do that are almost completely impossible to differentiate if somebody just gives you a tab of something or a liquid, you know, so you, you don't really know. And whereas, you know, originally it was like LSD 25 was the thing that was manufactured by Sandoz and discovered by Albert Hoffman by the late sixties, like who the hell knows what they were passing around there and getting, you know, since we know that this all came from the military and the CIA and just mysteriously found its way onto the streets. Um, uh, I think, you know, in, in the vein of like, you know, the chaos Charles Manson book, uh, you had uh, scientists getting government grants doing uh, research at the Haight-Ashbury Free Clinic on amphetamines and LSD and group behavior and juvenile delinquency and things like that. So I think it's very possible that they were testing more psychotic uh, or, you know, uh, versions of things that seemed like LSD but were uh, sort of psychogenetic in a way. Uh, I mean, they would they would induce psychosis. And then all you need is one person to, you know, get a little freaked out. And if they pull out a gun, like, I don't know, it seemed very uh, spooky. Uh, the whole event, I mean, you know, that the Hells Angels, you know, murdered this guy and uh, and basically killed off. Yeah, I'm sorry. Meredith Hunter was the young man that was killed. Um, and then there were, I guess, three accidental deaths, two caused by a hit and run car accident and one by an LSD induced drowning in an irrigation canal. So uh, scores were injured. Numerous cars were stolen and then abandoned. There was extensive property damage. And, uh, you know, the concert figure featured Santana, Jefferson Airplane, the Flying Burrito Brothers, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, the Rolling Stones. And, uh, and the Grateful Dead was uh, going to perform after CSNY but declined to play shortly before their scheduled appearance due to the increasing violence at the venue. And the Grateful Dead, interestingly, were prime organizers and movers of the festival. 
Interestingly, you know, after that happens, that was when the Rolling Stones and uh, Mick Jagger, who was actually supposed to appear in Lucifer Rising, was like, I don't really want to have anything to do with this kind of thing or guy anymore, for whatever reason. <laughs> they were like, uh, maybe, you know, they're trying to maybe redeem their image in some way. They're like, actually, all this stuff about the occult, uh, maybe I don't want to do that anymore. Uh, so... That is uh, true. They, they kind of made a hard pivot. Um, they even had an album called, like, Her Her Majesty's Satanic something that was kind of a panned psychedelic album that they made in the late 60s uh, that really kind of um, – people really didn't vibe on it. It wasn't like the Beatles <laughs> where everybody loved, you know, their psychedelic shit. They So in the 70s, they kind of went back – I mean, they got into, like, drug addiction and went and made Exile on Main Street and then kind of came back out as, like, a sort of modern, sort of disco-infused – blues rock band which is kind of what they've they've been basically a bluesy rock band ever since but this was their this was kind of the end of the road for their initiation into the occult and before we move on from altamont because we've already mentioned them a couple times uh but who who else happened to be at altamont that day on the film crew i think it was uh it was david mazels um who were filming the rolling Stones 1969 tour and were there that day and one of the camera operators this is his first film job ever was a young uh, USC guy named George Lucas. Mm. He just so happened to be there. And I, I think he also had a job. I remember reading Easy Riders and Raging Bulls a year ago, years ago, and he had some kind of job making like informational documentaries for the U.S. government when he got out of college. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. So that was uh, kind of, which again, kind of syncs up a lot of this stuff, syncs up with, uh, you know, when like Marjorie Cameron doing top secret photographic work and like the Hollywood Navy in Potomac, Maryland. A lot of this syncs up to something we will do a full episode on one day, but that is Lookout Mountain Air Force Base in Laurel Canyon, Los Angeles. And this was a top secret Uh, Air Force military installation that was basically a secret film studio that the government used from, I believe, the early 1950s to ostensibly the early 1970s when it was shut down. And originally it was used to process the film from nuclear test explosions, from uh, cameras that were attached to, like, fighter planes in Vietnam doing, like, napalm bombing raids and things like that. But they also shot all kinds of informational videos uh, for various government agencies and the military, stuff that was classified and not for public consumption, and most of which has never been seen by the public or you know we don't even know the descriptions of what they did but it was actually i think it was one of the if not the largest studio facilities in hollywood even though nobody even knew it was there ostensibly until this is not public knowledge until i think the 1970s but they've uh some journalists and historians have dug up various people like gene kelly who you mentioned uh marjorie cameron met uh, at the Hollywood Navy office in Potomac in World War II. Gene Kelly was a member there, uh, would go there to shoot, I, I presume, informational movies. I believe Marilyn Monroe uh, went there, Jimmy Stewart. Um, a lot of big Hollywood names kind of contracted with the government or were loaned out by the studios to go shoot these top-secret films, and we have no idea what they were, and uh, it was eventually shut down, and then I think it went through some different owners. It was turned into a scandal-plagued rehab center in the 2000s that had a few deaths on its site, and then that closed down, and now, ever since, I believe, 2014, it is owned by uh, ultra-creep weirdo Gerald Leto, and he lives in it as basically his house. 
Hmm. So, uh, but but yeah, we'll 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 like di- we'll do a whole thing on that. But I, I just wanted to mention the, the kind of the weird synchronicity of like George Lucas doing kind of work and Marjorie Cameron and maybe even Kenneth Anger doing like the re the sacred mushroom edition of pleasure dome right as the LSD revolution kicked off. And, you know, I mean, and, and then getting funding from such a sketchy billionaire like J Paul Getty jr. Who I know was based in London at that time, but kind of had his paws all over a bunch of sketchy businesses in California and obviously had a lot of power in California. Cause that's where the Gettys were from. Um, so yeah, end of tangent. Talking about Invocation of My Doom Brother, one of my favorite parts, and kind of as a reference to the the Babylon working, uh, is the scene where they're all kind of proceeding on the stairs, playing these pipes, uh, and then suddenly one of them is holding a sign that reads, uh, "Zap, you're pregnant. That's witchcraft." I saw that. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, very uh, interesting. You know, kind of uh, links back around uh-huh. uh, to that. But and- yeah, they're both interest, and they're both very. Re- you know, they both uh, mention Babylon. Uh, explicit where it allude to Babylon explicitly. It's uh, yeah, they're uh, these two sort of later films, both uh, both very interesting uh, in in those connections. Yeah, it's also worth mentioning before we totally move on from that movie that at one point there's a sort of satanic high priest dressed in red robe is kind of up on like an altar stage who's sort of gesticulating, and at one point he's sort of waving around a Nazi flag. Yeah. So, you know, uh, I'm sure it was ironic, but... Yeah, definitely ironic. <laughs> yeah, um, just hanging that Nazi flag on your wall to deal with your intergenerational Yeah, I trauma. wonder if that was Bobby Beausoleil. I don't know. Yeah, I'm not sure who that was uh, who was gesticulating wildly and waving a Nazi flag around. I mean, it wasn't... It's not, so, like, untrod ground for Kenneth Anger to incorporate the Nazi flag into his movies, uh, but... Yeah, I, I'm not sure who, which uh, guy that exactly that was, but yeah, it's a it's a weird part of the film. Uh, yeah, it's it's interesting. There's lots of superposition, kind of uh, uh, so weird, sort of soft focus type stuff where things kind of uh, replicate into multiple. So, so I, I remember a close up on like a tattoo of a spider, and a lot of the time it almost seems like you're looking through the eight eyes of a spider in this movie. And there's a scene where yeah, I want to say. Effects. Someone, someone, one of these, like, you know, typical, like, young, like, a life, uh, nubile young men, uh, you know, ha- kind of has these Kali, like, six arms through the double exposure. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm not sure uh, who it was. I wanted to, I want to say it's Mick Jagger, but maybe, maybe it's not. But anyway, uh, yeah. And it might be his brother. Yeah, people's limbs kind of fuse into, uh, like, a triskelion like formation. It's, yeah, it's a very, uh, yeah, it's a it's a it's an interesting movie, and yeah, uh, as is as is the rising, particularly the end when these when these flying saucers sort of appear, uh, they both sort of have this uh, invocation of some kind of Armageddon or 
uh, some kind of, uh, you know, great uh, you know, turning or something uh, that mm-hmm. is, is supposed to be happening. But yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It, it, they seem it, it, it does have a very apocalyptic vibe to it. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, when, once you get to the 80s, like we talked about in the previous episodes, um, the people like Nicholas Shrek, you know, the who's married to, you know, somebody whose godfather was Kenneth Anger, you know, talking about wanting to exterminate most of the human race and um and the kind of like lusting for nuclear apocalypse in the 80s and stuff. You can kind of see a a, a synchronicity between the symbolism in Lucifer Rising and uh and and the, the welcoming of that kind of apocalypse, which I just uh I don't know, I just can't really see it. Like why would you want a nuclear apocalypse? Uh yeah. You know, um, um, it's interesting to, to think of some of the things he says now reflecting on his career. I remember, uh, again, in that talk I watched when he walks up on stage, of course, he first starts off commenting on the, the plum curtain uh, that they're using, you know, because he's just so fixated with color as you know, his great uh, hero Crowley also was very, uh, you know, uh, invested in the sort of symbology and the metaphysics even of color. Um, and it is almost like an Oscar Wilde type statement, who's someone who also reminds me a lot, or kind of thing reminds me a lot of, but, um, mm. yeah, and he, uh, and then he says something about, uh, how if anything ever happened to him, they would be able to identify his body because they have his name tattooed, he has his name tattooed across his chest, um, which of course is mm. Lucifer is what he has tattooed across his chest. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, he sees himself as being that little, that little cheeky prankster, you know, that, that little cheeky little freak who, uh, that has little that little, that, like, at that the beginning cute, of his films. Yeah. That cute little sense of humor. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that he's been on a different side of the equation, kind of the, the the mentor the older figure a lot of times and are chasing after the the young nubile lucifer but i also think he sees him as that puckish that puckish prankster you know uh uh, and yeah he uh he made a comment that i think is is very interesting about i mean he said uh i think that you have this in your notes that he said something about uh, how movies are evil in a way. Uh, movies. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was he a black a day for humanity when cinema was was invented. Yeah, he said. Uh, th- this is the direct quote. I've always considered movies evil. The day that cinema was invented was a black day for mankind. Yeah, I think okay. he revisited that quote in years late uh, in later years, and he said something. I mean, people were like, "So you said movies are evil?" And he said, "Well, you know, are rattlesnakes evil? Well, they're dangerous." And I think that's. It's interesting that he chose a snake. But I, I think that is, in a way, uh, it's a true statement, you know? Uh, I don't necessarily it's, it's know not untrue. If, yeah, I don't necessarily know if we can consider cinema good or bad, but it certainly is dangerous. It's not something trivial or frivolous in the way that a lot of discourse now we think about, uh, oh, this stuff doesn't matter, you know, it's just this, or uh, it's merely that. It's kind of like, it reminds me of the, the discourse around, like, video games and Columbine, like, uh, uh-huh. and the Tipper Gore stuff, like, how dare, you, you know, like, imply <laughs> that, like, media can affect anything, you know, that's kind of uh, the idea, but even this, like, this yeah. guy himself knows that that's not true, like, he admits, like, that this is material, that this is, like, has an impact, these are rituals that produce an effect, so... Yeah. You know, and then, but all of it, you know, people who will defend him will ignore what he himself openly says, which is just, yeah. you know, it makes you a little bit angry. 
uh, you know, to, um, but yeah. What to, con- to consider that? Uh, well, to, you know, to, yeah, this sort of uh, weird uh, cognitive dissonance, but I was making yeah, a, a, yeah. a Crowleyan little, a little pun, a little puckish pun on, you know, his, his pseudonym, Kath Anger. Oh, wind up doll, everyone knows, wind it up and away it goes. It does the things it's taught to do, I guess I'm kind of a wind up dolly too. I mean, the thing is, he stopped making... We're kind of at the end of the Magic Lantern cycle now. Um, yeah. In 1972. He kept fiddling with some of these movies into the 80s. And, oh, you know what? Last thing we'll do is we, we have to talk about the, the Mouse movie. What was it called? Yeah. Mouse Heaven. Mouse uh, Heaven, he, which yeah, which he, it opens up with, like, a title card, kind of a shitty, like, Comic Sans title card, because this is from yeah. 2006, um, that says, Sir Paul Getty Presents. Um, but actually, yes. like, he was dead by then, right? He died uh, in 2003. I'm sure that he paid for the movie, at least. Yeah, so that, that might have been the last the time. Yeah, that might have been yeah. his, like, last uh, patronage of Kenneth Anger before dying yeah. was, like, uh, and, yeah, do you want to explain that? I think Kenneth Anger actually, you know, in terms of the patronage, I think that he made a lot of movies that we'll never see because they were just made for private people. Mm-hmm. He described John Paul Getty as being, he actually compared him with, I think, uh, Mick Jagger or... It was either Mick Jagger or Jimmy Page who he compared him to, calling him a rich miser. He was saying that, uh, you know, one of them bought a uh, some of Crowley's paintings and that they wouldn't sell them. They just put them in the closet or something like that. Um, it was Jimmy Page. He uh, had bought some of Crowley's paintings and then he kept them in the closet. And he said, well, he's a miser. You know, he's, he's greedy. And then he talked about how uh, the senior John Paul Getty um, actually, the senior John Paul Getty was a rich was a rich miser. Yeah, he. Um, but, I mean, just to quote like like John Paul Getty himself when his grandson was kidnapped in the early seventies, he had the famous quote: "He refused to pay any money, and because he said, quote, if I pay one penny, I'll have fourteen kidnapped grandchildren, or something like that.' But he 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 haggled very hard on with these kidnappers who eventually cut his grandson's ear off and mailed it to them to prove how serious they were. And actually, I just. Total trivia, but um, you know who actually went and when they finally did agree to pay and brought the bag of cash to the like the I think it was like mafia kidnappers that had kidnapped him. You know who that was? Who was it? Bill Newsom, Gavin Newsom's dad. Because yeah, hmm. <laughs> he was he was the lawyer and the executor of the Getty Family Trust, so he was actually legally he had power of attorney over the finances of. Uh, of, I believe it was John Paul Getty Jr. Yeah. Speaking Pretty of cool. the mafia, I remember that, like, uh, back going back to Scorpio Rising, I remember reading that uh, 
a lot of those people in the movie he found at the Fulton Fish Market, which ended up being kind of a mafia operation, apparently. That's a whole other rabbit hole one could go down. But anyway, yeah, John Paul Getty was apparently a huge patron of Kenneth Anger, and after he died, uh, you know, as we've mentioned, he didn't have a will, so Kenneth Anger kind of didn't have any patron. He he complained about not being able to make any movies. But one of the movies that he did make uh, for him was this Mouse Heaven. Uh, according to his statement in the talk that I that I watched of his, um, it's very discursive and ultimately not very informative talk. He mentioned that they both like you know had a fascination with Mickey Mouse. Um, hmm. And this movie is all composed entirely from a uh, memorabilia collection of uh, sort of early and then rare or unusual, it's very, very, very creepy. And mm-hmm. you could go down, you know, you could talk all about the, the spookiness of Mickey Mouse. He, Mickey Mouse himself is kind of a trick, he's interesting, he's like trickster, sort of minstrel almost yeah. figure. He was a minstrel uh, character, kind of wearing like white face, right? Or, yeah. Or, or, I forget, it was a white face or black face that he was kind of wearing. Well, his uh, sort of, persona and the way that he acts and behaves especially uh and even some of the other disney cartoon characters have these traits but definitely like the the way that he behaves in the cartoon his sort of uh, body language is inspired by the sort of minstrel musical tradition but yeah mickey mouse is a very uh like uh, spooky figure to to me and uh, i mean a lot of people will say like oh walt disney uh mickey mouse is the projection of him or something but uh, especially some of these early depictions of Mickey Mouse where he has whiskers, he looks very uncanny, especially uh, the puppets. Uh, you know, Kenneth Anger kind of manipulates the puppets in this movie and makes them talk, and this kind of goes back to the thing we mentioned earlier uh, with this movie where there's a sort of puppetry. Um, mm. And yeah, in the end, as I mentioned, uh, he, t- he just picks some of the Mickey Mouse sort of coin banks or, and eventually it just becomes this glittering sort of chrome skeleton. There's definitely like an occultic take on mickey mouse here in fact at one point i believe he's even holding like a, a red ruby uh in the way that some of the the magus type characters and some of his earlier films are um hmm. it's an interesting engagement with disneyland actually also in that talk that i mentioned he was uh praising and talking about the jonas brothers um really you know yeah he was saying uh uh or well he was talking about the real d film it was very bizarre because I've heard some statements by Kenneth Anger where he kind of talks about how Disney has made everything homogenous, he doesn't like modern cinema or whatever, but at least in this talk, he was uh, relatively positive. And he was talking about how, uh, you know, these girls had lined up for 72 hours to see the Jonas Brothers film that was filmed in Real D, and he was praising the Real D uh, as something, you know, it didn't give you a headache, it's an amazing form of 3D, and he loved it. Um, And he said uh, an interesting line, which is that, they, you know, they line up to, they suffer for the, the people who they are devoted to, which is not a bad system, you know, it's a very ancient system, and it's like, okay, Ooh. all right, buddy. And, uh, yeah, but then he, he went on and said, like, Disney, you know, please, uh, it was funny, it was kind of like uh, something you would see, like a fanboy, like a Marvel or, like, a Star Wars fanboy say on Twitter today, where it's like, hire me, Disney! But he was saying, <laughs> like, uh, Disney, like, please let me make this Mouse Heaven movie in real D, please let me do this in real yeah. D, and it's just like imagine uh, this movie is not his best work it's very like you know it's like a film school like it's skillful but it seemed to have been shot on like a dv like 2000s era dv digital camcorder yeah it's more of a showcase yeah it's more of a showcase for this collect but he was like passionate about it and, and he liked it it's 
a very weird personality. You've seen sometimes you see in people where they just will talk about something with such passion, and you don't understand like what is. That's something that I've definitely noticed in Kenneth Anger and, and observing his his quotes, reading about him and watching him. But yeah, he uh, you know made this appeal that they should let him shoot this like five minute. Mickey Mouse memorabilia tour. He wasn't even able to use the name Mickey Mouse in the title because he would have been sued. You know, he called it Mouse Heaven. Um, and yeah, it's a, yeah, it's a, it's an, an eerie film. And I think that it's a, it's a nice capstone for this because it shows uh, the crossover between this kind of uh, avant-garde, uh, esoteric filmmaker and the the kind of mainstream where he's kind of uh, bringing his eye to that and bringing out, I think, in, a, in an interesting way the uh the dark underbelly of of that stuff this figure who we see all the time this 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 puckish the puckish mouse yeah yeah exactly and maybe it's it's like worth um well i i just want to mention it because it's funny his obsession with real d because i just saw a post from that that la gossip blog which is almost like the modern incarnation of hollywood babylon i'm talking about crazy days and nights which I followed on and off for years, um, and it's, it's an interesting. Uh, they cover, they allude to some interesting things around like MK Ultra and a lot of scandalous things in Hollywood. But somebody was sharing today that they're basically the Crazy Days and Nights guy was making an allegation. Uh, I don't know. It, it, it's a little, it's a little complicated. But basically, that Jaws 3D was connected to some kind of MK Ultra experiment, seeing <laughs> if they could use 3D technology to like manipulate audiences, and also somehow, may, perhaps Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure uh, was hmm. also it, it, somehow connected to this. It, it's all about blackmailing actors and. Uh, and about Tulane University's MK Ultra experiments and uh, altering brains. One aspect of research, the hidden research that has caused the government to get into so so deeply with Hollywood. It's not just about propaganda. It is what he hypothesized during his experiments. What would happen if you didn't need the actual electrodes hooked to the brain? What if you could do it via some other method? What visual effect closest resembles or mimics what he was doing with electrodes? Was there something? Yes, there was. The thing of it is, everyone who submits to it does so voluntarily. Back in the very early 80s when things were tough, they had to keep a low profile because of all the hearings and aftermath of the congressional investigations. It was disguised as a grant paid to the university, I think that's Tulane, and it involved using three in movies. This was crude. They were guessing and they were not sure it was going to work. They needed a huge 3D movie they knew would get tens of thousands of people into theaters to see what would work and what wouldn't. It also had to be a film that got people to react several different times during the movie and caused some stress. So many things to test. The government gave a whole bunch of money to get a movie made that really had no reason to be made and then made it in 3D. It was exactly what researchers needed, and they set up five theaters in different parts of the country with cameras and measuring devices to see the results of their tests. They also wanted to test it with a completely different kind of film, one which made zero sense to put it in 3D. It was ridiculous and also a really bad movie. To make things interesting, they picked a movie about spies and Russians. They wanted to test reactions in a completely different way. 
Those are the first two. Since then, they have refined and refined and found which actors work best delivering messages or lines. Funny thing how the actors that perform the best are the ones who were blackmailed. Two A-plus list mostly movie actors are at the top of the list. Think the long, long long-awaited sequels in two separate franchises starring the same A-plus list actor and in two very differing formats was a coincidence? It is the same type of setup they used over three decades ago. Two total opposites. Um, And that blind item is about Tulane University, Dr. Robert Galbraith Heath, who I guess was an MK Ultra scientist. The huge 3D movie is Jaws 3D. The ridiculous and really bad movie is The Man Who Wasn't There from 1983. And the A-plus list actor uh, allegedly is Keanu Reeves and he's talking about the Matrix and Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. I don't even know what he's fully getting at there, but it's kind of interesting. Um, they seem to be on a real MK Ultra kick lately on that website. And, and it's very uh, interesting in line with, uh, you know, Kenneth Anger's comments about Real D. Um, exactly. I mean, he might just be a cineast who's interested in the technology, but it is, it is an interesting connection. That yeah, and, yeah, and maybe that's like that. Uh, that's kind of a, a good place to wrap up because I guess yeah, Crazy Days and Nights is kind of the Hollywood Babylon. Uh, though I, I, I don't trust. I don't think anybody should trust it 100. percent But somewhat more trustworthy, perhaps, than uh, than you know the messenger and, uh, of Hollywood Babylon. There's a new Bill and Ted, uh, isn't there? Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, where they're dads mm, and stuff. Yeah, yeah no, no, it's stay, coming stay, out. Stay it's stay coming vigilant. out. Stay oh, you know, actually, sorry, just to say that, like, the last movie I think he made, uh, Kenneth Anger, uh, just so we don't forget to mention it, was uh, Iqville, which is a kind of poppy, fun montage of Nazi footage of Nazi Germany and Hitler uh, <laughs> play with, like, fucking opera music playing over it or something. Uh so, you know, it's, it's you know, a very influential filmmaker, not trying to denigrate his aesthetic achievements, but uh, as always, dear listeners, stay vigilant. Call it. Uh, oh, yeah. Peace, everyone. Satan is real, working in spirit. You can see him and hear him in this world every day. service at a little church in the country not long ago. A prayer was led by an old country preacher who then raised his hands as everyone stood and sang, My God is Real. A warm breeze through the open windows brought in the smell of new-mown hay in a nearby field, and the singing of birds could be heard in the moment of silence as the preacher opened his Bible to read. And then a little old man stood up bent with age, his hair thin and white, and said, Preacher, tell them that Satan is real too. You can hear him in songs that give praise to idols and sinful things of this world. You can see him in the destruction of homes torn apart. I know that Satan is real, for once I had a happy home. I was loved and respected by my family. I was looked upon as a leader in my community. And then Satan came into my life. I grew selfish and unneighborly. My friends turned against me. And finally, my home was broken apart. My children took their paths into a world of sin. Yes, preacher, 
It's sweet to know that God is real and to know that in him all things are possible. And we know that heaven is a real place where joys shall never end. But sinner friend, if you're here today, Satan is real too. And hell is a real place, a place of everlasting punishment. Say.